Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests, and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Good evening, everybody, and welcome along to Midweek Motorsport. It's episode 36 of season 14. John Heindorf uh, in a very odd position this week. No, please, not like that. Uh, because I'm at Heindorf Towers and I'm on me Todd. No Tim Gray this week. He's on assignment. Kerry, Kes Cobb is making the magic happen back in London. So everything is coming through either her desk at the main control centre or my desk here. Uh, it doesn't mean that we can't still... Uh, take your tweets, please, at Specutainment. Uh, hello to everyone who's already got in touch. Good to have your company. Uh, PTG Wildcat is my favourite person this week because he's come out with the rendering of the Coca-Cola Porsche that uh, we were at the launch of last week. Uh, and um, I've already lost a bit of time running that car around Road Atlanta, if I'm honest. Rob Chalmers, earlier on today, or no, yesterday, said, is midweek motorsport tonight? I can't tell anymore. The 10-day world tour has got me so jet-lagged. Well, I hope you know what you're doing uh, now, Rob, uh, and you tuned in. I'll say this to myself, but on a packed show tonight, uh, we have the big interview. There is only one big interview to have this week. The story broke last Thursday. Scott Atherton, the man at the head of IMSA, will be stepping aside. He's our big interview just after the first hour tonight. So into the second hour with Scott. We'll also be waking up Richard Krill for an Aussie update as well. And in between now and then, or then and now, if you see what I mean, uh, then we'll pack in as much as we can uh, we're going to try and get in touch with Johnny Palmer he's on his way back from Spa Jeremy Shaw standing by for us and of course we've got all the other bits and pieces and some travel news tonight because that could be interesting for those of you who have been following the news hello to Atkins Consulting who's tuned in uh, Tom Gaymore might well be listening tonight Tom I never knew you were a bike man nice work on the ball door at the weekend I was very envious of you being there Matt Endane's listening tonight as is Yoda's uncle uh, and Randy Brown isn't listening. He's on the podcast while uh, he will be, at least while stuck in Seattle traffic. Couldn't pass up the opportunity to go hiking. And he sent me a picture, which makes me, again, very, very envious. Robert Stevens. Robert, listening live for the first time in several weeks. Good luck, mate. Uh, I know that you're in Houston at the moment uh, and we wish you all the best with your uh, treatment. Uh, also listening in tonight, casually aging John, who supplied some uh, crucial information, which we'll come to a bit uh, later on in the show. Charles Warren is listening on his uh, way home, having downloaded from the website, he says. Right turn lover tonight. Uh, EFAs as ever for Scree Zilla as well, listening on Friday morning on the way to work. No game shows tonight with Tim not being here today. And Phil says, no 
EFAs, are we discussing ELMS? Yes, we can if we can get in touch, touch with JP. He's on his travels at the moment. Hello to Carol Brink in Monterey, to Andrew Barca, who's on the podcast, but wants to pass on sincere thanks to Scott Atherton, as to have many of you. Thank you. Uh, Chris Ring, EFAs for this week. In the last couple, he's, he's watching MasterChef, apparently. Oh, really? Hmm. Putting in the EFAs for Michael Denny. Soundtracking is Windsor Park Half Marathon on Saturday. Hopefully, I'll finish before the show does. Well, it's a packed show tonight. We might have to go into a bit of overtime. And also, Chris Suku, who is listening to the podcast, he's out in Coventry with friends at the moment. Uh, keep them coming in. At Specutainment, I have some papers. What should I do with them? I will shuffle them while Curry plays the news jingle. All the latest motorsport news from around the world. Midweek Motorsport. Papers are shuffled. Top story is here, and it's Formula One. Hooray! 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 There you go. Secondary oh. hoorays. You need to keep mixing it up, otherwise you, otherwise you will just stick you in a hot key and I'll be out of a job. Yeah, well, mm, there's a thought. There's a thought. Uh, <laughs> Singapore, to anything except a complete Formula One fanboy, it was dull as ditchwater. Is that fair? Well, no, and yes. Because <laughs> actually, uh, and you know how much I love everything going on in F1, how I, how we often have rows about races which are which you have described as done. I've gone okay. I did think the first ten laps or so were what on earth are you doing, you silly boys? And then it got really interesting on a purely tactical level. Then it got quite obvious. Then it got a bit dull, and then at the end it just got a bit tedious, only because people because of the the track not having enough ways of getting cars off so three safety cars back to back was a bit tedious and then it had a result and it was quite controversial and despite there being no real hype points i still thought it was very entertaining there we really? are that's my summation of it let's let's take the phases of the race okay um, and we'll come back to some of the other points um what were the nearly 10 seconds lapping 10 seconds slower oh, 30 off the maximum i suppose you're probably right seven or eight off what they could have done probably at that point it became obvious to me very early on that, in fact, Ferrari last weekend played the technical masterstroke and Mercedes were rubbish again. So it, I thought that Ferrari had lost their way technically and that Mercedes had finally found a playbook. But it just seems that they're all as incompetent slash lucky slash just, what, magic eight ball in the pit lane? Because as soon as the, the front end was running slow, we had the closest Formula One field in a race that I can remember in terms of the spread from front to back. Even Team Awful Williams actually weren't that far off. And it, 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 <laughs> and, it, it, and it meant that the strategy was being dictated from the front of the field. Whether they meant it or not, it, it worked for Ferrari. Now, we can talk about what Ferrari did afterwards, but it worked for Ferrari because it meant that basically all of the strategy was taken out of the hands of Mercedes-Benz. Yeah, well, I think that's, you know, that is the point. The thing to remember, really, is that Singapore is a, a weird combination of a tyre-limited race, but also a race where you can't dare have two pit stops under green because the pit lane is, A, uh, down to 60 clicks, so it's a slow pit lane itself, and you lose a lot of time because of the, where the rest of the track is. It's down the main straight. So the actual pit stop loss is huge, and, of course, it's not a given you can overtake someone, so track position is king. So you have that ultimate situation, really, where you if you wanted to do a two-stop strategy, which I would be pretty certain is theoretically quicker on a, on a clear track, you don't have a clear track. 
and it all Correct. falls to its, it falls out. So everyone's running on one stop and worried about tire degradation. So they start off when the cars are heavy on the ro- and on soft tires, effectively just going as slowly as possible to to reach that point. What we did see is finally with with Fettel not neither neither Fettel or Leclerc making a pig's breakfast of qualifying, suddenly they had the tactical upper hand with first and third compared to second and fourth on Mercedes. And Mercedes had knew they could run longer. They knew they had better tire degradation. Whereas you know. Ferrari, as they proved on Saturday, were quicker over a lap and had set their car up to be quicker over a lap. Basically, they, they, they'd gone for um, Monaco rules, which is just make it good in qualifying and worry about the race later. Whilst we're talking about that, and you, you mentioned qualifying, very, very clever management from Ferrari. They gave Leclerc the upgrade package first. They had enough for both cars. So in first free practice, Leclerc went out when the, the track was at its worst with the upgrade package and went pretty well. They let... Vettel have it later on when the track was much better, and so he went better, effectively helping Seb's head out. I thought that was genius management. Well, yeah, but Leclerc probably had a gearbox problem as well, to be honest. But... Now, the amount of times we've criticised Ferrari management, I think it's only fair to say that I think they played no, a blinder there. No, and I think, I think they did it. I think, I think Ferrari, certainly, when they finally had all their, all their ducks in a row, including both their drivers putting in a good weekend, have put together a, a really, really, really good process. And, and Mercedes, you know, I, I don't think, I think Mercedes, there's a kind of a, did they, the, the, you know, because what it basic was, is Lewis says, if he'd come in the same lap as Fettel, then he would have come out back out in the lead. And that's probably, uh, that's true. The question Mercedes asked, and says why they didn't pull the trigger up on was it lap 16. The thing was, once they hadn't pulled the trigger on lap 16, they were done. What they then, what they then did actually was the logical thing, which was go as because at that point they knew they were coming out third, and therefore they said, what we'll do is we'll we'll see what happens. We'll hope the tyres last long enough to get the other guys slowed down in in traffic. There might be a safety car over those eight laps, and therefore they basically played the gamble. They kind of got caught in between. Because they didn't allow the chasing group to get slowed down by those midfield cars. No, the problem was at that point, John, that uh, Lewis's tyres had gone. Right. So Lewis at that point was actually going slower than Giovinazzi. Right. Okay. See. Okay. Um, on the medium. So, he, so at that point, they had kind of run out of that. And then they ended up in the embarrassment of having to make sure that uh, Bottas effectively wasn't actually. Bottas wasn't slowing down to for him to finish no, to, no, to no. come out you know, behind. He was slowing down to prevent. Albon getting past them as well. You're correct. I complete. This is going to be a boring program if we keep agreeing about all of this stuff. As you've rightly said, it wasn't about his position to Bottas, but what was going on behind him. It could have been two or three positions further back. So I, I think that that worked well. Now, what about Ferrari then? So Ferrari get it right in practice and qualifying. They got a good start. Leclerc is driving away. He's doing the things he needs to be doing, and then. Sebastian gets the call for the pits. Now, is that Sebastian overriding the pits and saying I'm coming in? Well, he said it was. He said it was the team, and if he just came in on a whim, they wouldn't be ready for him. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the team called him in. Now, they say they didn't realise the undercut was going to be such it was. They thought they could get oh. past Lewis. The fact was, the gap between Lewis and um, Leclerc was about 0.6 of a second. So that's pretty impressive slotting in there, to be honest. Um, yeah, and they, and they and they they stuck Seb in and said. Did, did what Seb can do so nowadays. He's, you know, he's still, he's, you know, as they say, you know, form is temporary, class is permanent. You know, his form has been appalling, but he does have the ability to show his class, and he certainly did uh, from lap 16 onwards the Grand Prix. Uh, put in a fast lap, got ahead of Leclerc. Leclerc had a bit of a moan about it, as you would expect. 
um, because that's not supposed to happen. If you if you are the leading car of a, of a, of a supposedly even two man team, then you're supposed to get first call on pit stops. Well, and he's the le- he was the leading driver in the championship as well, and he still is if, if, in terms of Ferrari. All right, he's he's lead over his teammates now, only six points. I think Ferrari know they're not going to win the drivers' championship. Yeah. So therefore, you know, a PR confidence boost for driver two or driver one, depending how you feel, Sebastian Vettel is, you know, works quite well. And you know, a slightly aggrieved driver going into the next Grand Prix, he's not, yeah, normally works out pretty well because they're slightly more not, they're slightly more um, uh, motivated to prove that they've been they've been wronged. What did happen at the weekend was that. Leclerc goes ahead on goal difference. I know it's not called that, um, but you know what I mean. He's, he's got more wins than uh, Verstappen. Yeah. So he's gone up into third. So he's the best non-Mercedes driver. They're both on 200 points and Vettel is um, 194 and then everybody else is nowhere. There's six races to go and Lewis over a non-teammate is just shy of four races yeah. ahead. Yeah. But that, that is why I think at this point, you know, Ferrari aren't bothered about their drivers anymore. Um, so they're very happy to play the game where they'll just boost the confidence one or the other. I mean, yeah, what has, you know, it is obviously a, a great weekend for Ryan. They did a brilliant job. Um, they brought upgrades. They certainly were. The problem, the only caveat I have to stick in there is that I'm pretty, I agree with Lewis in that he was the fastest car in race pace. And yeah. also, Singapore isn't a typical track. Correct. So, you know, let's let's see where we go next. I mean, obviously, it's an improvement. They've obviously improved the car. Whether it's this night and day and now they're going to be the fastest car at, you know, no. You know, tracks like Suzuka, which is all medium speed corners, is, is less likely or cold weather as, as apparently they're expecting this weekend in Sochi, which obviously the Ferrari still have the warm up problems. The one thing I will notice, have you noticed that in the last six, seven races since it's been, I think, I think been two Red Bull wins, I think three Ferrari wins and two Mercedes wins, everyone stopped talking about the tyres. You notice that? It's mm. no longer a tyre advantage. Well, yeah, they, well they, they, one, they, one tyre disadvantage that Mercedes had was at the restarts after the safety cars because they couldn't get the heat in the tyres. That was absolutely yeah, I, clear. I think that was that they had warm-up problems the whole weekend. Yeah. Um, but that's because they're good on the tyres. Warm-up problems. <laughs> exactly. Warm-up problems basically. No, warm-up problems basically mean you're not you're not working your tyres hard enough, which is bad news for restarts. Good news for the actual race. Here's a question. So, Here's a question. All the drivers, the front six drivers, all on the radio, all on the phone, whinging like mad about not being able to follow and not being able to race. However, that didn't seem to be the case in the midfield. There was all kinds of scrapping going on. So what's the difference between the cars in the midfield and the top, and the top three teams? Because everybody else were having two, three, four, five car battles where they were up each other's gearbox to the point where they were running into each other um, on the straights, round the corners. It didn't make a blind bit of difference. So when people say that these new aero regs aren't working, well, they weren't working for the top three, uh, top three teams, but they were for everybody else. Maybe the top three teams are running to a, to a certain time, which they could achieve with one arm behind their back. The, the other cars were obviously nearer their performance envelope at that particular time with their particular weight. And more importantly, of course, don't forget that we had a train of cars. So car two was also being mucked about by the turbulent air. Of car, and then when car three and car four came to attack him, car two wasn't running in clear air either. At the front of the field, you had Leclerc lapping 10 seconds off the pace, 7 seconds off yeah. the pace, whatever it yeah. was. And and Lewis still couldn't get past him. So he used all the engine modes and everything else. And he still, surely it would have been worthwhile. And, and it, before you say, and the tyres, but surely it would have been worthwhile just saying to, to Lewis, right, just route your tyres, two laps, get past him, and then you control the pace and see what he does. Because they haven't got two seconds. And, and the point about it is, is you get behind them into the DRS and they'll just take a bit of overtake to keep ahead of them and they'll, and they'll just put the pace up and, it, and, and the problem is the following car is always 
sitting in the hot, dirty air of the car in front. So it's, 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 and it's a very, I don't forget, it's very hot in Singapore. Yeah, so, you know, it's humid. It, you know, this is the point. The, 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 the fact is that cars can't follow each other very well. But when you've got a train of cars, you always have a chance for, for car three to dive bomb car two or car car two has a minor problem with it by slightly mucking up the exit corner that gets magnified because you know they've got traffic yeah. around them so that's why i get that's why it gets very interesting whereas the front cars are sitting around they even make a minor mistake they just oh we'll just we've got so much in reserve we'll just boot it out and you know do a 0.5 percent of damage to our tires so yeah singapore is a fantastic event it's um a very very um picturesque it's it's everyone loves it they were they are talking i think they, they probably need to think about sorting out the pit lane making it so it can be faster making an mm. 80 kilometer pit lane so that will speed things up and they also need to do something about the fact that if any car stops anywhere on the track it has to be a safety car mm-hmm. not even a virtual safety car it has to be a safety car they need some because cranes they, they need some monogasque any... style yeah. cranes yeah exactly they need some cranes and and, and that's you know but apart from that i mean I, I, the people are always but yeah we've, i think we've had two or three of these uh, tactical um, races the last two have been quite tactical but you know right you're getting a bit um, bubbly yeah, so uh, let, let's just uh, let's just move on before we lose you all together a uh, couple of drivers i want to talk about who i thought did exceptionally well yeah. uh would be alexander alban and lando norris um for Red Bull and uh, McLaren, respectively, uh, both in their first outings at that track, both scoring points. Um, two rookies who did... I thought Albon, in some respects, with pressure on him, did probably a marginally better job than, than Lando did. I mean... Oh, no. No, 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 no. Not at all. Not at all. Albon came sixth out of the six cars that come in the top six. Right. That's what he did. He didn't crash. Well mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. He stuck in some reasonable laps. Okay. He was mm-hmm. a long way off his teammate qualifying. What's, you know, basically what he did was what he was supposed to do. Right. But the absolute lower end of what you're supposed to do. There was never a challenge to anybody. Right. He was always six. Now, obviously, that is slightly better than Pierre Gasly, who, who, who while in his tenure with Red Bull, was hanging around in seventh and ninth. Yeah. Though, oddly, Gasly had an excellent race in the um <laughs> Yes, he did. The in the Tour Toro Rosso. Norris is has a car that is significantly slower than uh, the Red Bull and managed to beat the whole of the midfield um, through a combination of, of good driving and a little bit of luck at the start. And then obviously because everyone was going so slowly, it was never that far behind um, the the other cars. So Norris did did, a, did, a, did a, another very good job. Both of them though, get, need to get an extra point because it is the first time there, which is difficult. But you know, I think that the, driving the yeah, driving the second Red Bull. You know, that sixth is what you should be. If you're only low on sixth, you've made a mistake. There is still this massive gap. The reason they had to wait so long before they could pull the tree because they, they were going so slow, they couldn't pull the normal massive gap. But normally, with 16 laps in, there's a huge hole between the last of the top three and the first of the uh, the rest. So, no, I, 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 yeah, Albon, better than Gasly. That's uh, right. Oh, sorry, Albon, better than Gasly when Gasly was driving a Red Bull. Right. Uh, <laughs> and something happened which you will be very happy about, and it was the first time it had happened since 1983. Do you know what it was? Alfa Romeo led the race. Yes. Led a race. Yes. And uh, that, for a few laps, that was Giovinazzi. And the last driver to have led a, led a race in 1983 was? Elia De Angelis. I think it was um, Andrea De Cesaris, yeah. actually. Yes, that was a complete guess. Um, Who retired in Spa. Um, <laughs> but then again, so did Nigel Mansell that day. And Nicky Lauder. And Roberto Guerrero. And Rene Arnoux. And, 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 and. Uh, right. Only 14 cars... Uh, you think about it. If if we've been running Singapore back, 
because they only had Singapore back in the uh, with, with the reliabilities we had in the 70s. You'd have nothing but safety cars because every time anyone broke down, <laughs> you'd have to have a safety cars. Possibly of more interest than anything that happened on the track. Then what's going on behind the scenes? Um, we know we found out for sure that what we thought we knew is that. Uh, Robert Kubica won't be at Williams next year. Uh, we know that Haas are keeping their two drivers. Well, no, that was the surprise. In fairness, that was a surprise. It was a surprise that they kept Grosjean. Mm. I, and I don't even understand why. Though I did read a byline that Grosjean is going to be bringing some sponsorship next year, which may be the answer to that question. He's also credited um, with a lot of technical feedback on the development of the car. Yeah, I mean, I'm very, very surprised. I don't see the dynamic of Grosjean and Magnussen working particularly well mm-hmm. um they don't seem particularly well matched uh, as a team um, you never get the impression they're, they're teammates who just happen to drive two similarly painted car. cars yeah um and roman even though i quite yeah, i think i quite, quite like him it's not really anything to say he's he's a great choice you know um obviously they had the option to take halkenberg apparently halkenberg was a bit expensive but there's plenty of other options out there um well well I'm... well yeah, yeah yeah for Haas there are but not for Hulkenberg so that's the other part of that question Hulkenberg's salary demands quote were um a sticking point prior to the weekend John I I my my feeling was genuinely he might end up at Ferrari next year mm-hmm. that Fettel was like was drifting towards I can't be bothered with this anymore <laughs> and they stick Hulkenberg in there though it does you know, that that has changed on on a, on a pin because if if this is the start of a, a resurgence, or at least a come back to normality for Sebastian, he will feel he can go into next year with a car that's likely to be much more competitive season season wide. Because don't forget, there's very few regulations yes, next correct. year. Correct. He is built this year. Um, he would feel more confident about um, his ability to drive the car, more confident about the car being more to his liking, more confident that you know, all right, he'll have a challenge with Leclerc, but he wouldn't be just sitting around fighting for third and making himself look an idiot. So. If you'd asked me what I thought was happening at that point, especially as, as Hulkenberg seemed very unconconcerned by losing his drive, his only last chance to to, to Haas, mm. I'd have gone, oh, he's he's thinking about being an option for Ferrari for a year, and then seeing what happens next. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, that was a surprise that took Grosjean, and Hulkenberg is, you know, an interesting course. Because the other problem is where I'm sure a lot of the endurance teams would quite like to have him, but he doesn't really work now. We've got a split season in the in uh, the um, WEC. So yeah, he's looking. He's staring down the the uh, the gun of uh, of not even. Yeah, you know, we, we, obviously with the fact that um, Formula E starts before the end of F1, it's even yes. like that. He'd be unlikely to go there as well. So it's, he looks like a sort of a, a year on the sidelines, which is uh, you know difficult unless something something again happens. There is a possibility you go to Williams um, and he tried to make the team less. Awful. awful Williams and but yeah normally that would be a great option but they've just been so dreadful do you want to do you want to go there and of course there's always Nicholas Atifi who's got lots of pounds shillings and pence so um yeah it's interesting with Hulkenberg I, I am but I, will, but, but I will say I was very surprised that Grosjean was retained mm. uh where are you next week are you back off round the world again back off round the world in Portugal for another world championship yeah uh, it's large scale world championship this time oh it's large scale touring cars isn't it next week yeah in Portugal. Where in Portugal? Villarreal, where they hold the touring car race, but not but down the road from there. All right, excellent. So we'll be will we get you on the phone next week or not? Not sure. Don't know. All right. I'll I'll, I'll keep you informed. All right. Thanks, Nick. Safe travels. And uh, it's travels we're talking about now, actually, uh, as Nick Damon disappears into the background. Uh, there, well, let's get our friend in the travel trade, Richard Webb, on the phone. Uh, he's joining us tonight from Travel Destinations. Good evening, Richard. Good evening, John. How are you? 
I'm very well indeed. Got to talk to you as our man in the travel trade about the big travel story this week, and that's Thomas Cook. Now, a lot of people will be affected by that for their summer holidays. Why are we talking about it on midweek motorsport? Uh, because it will affect some sporting events, uh, notably Le Mans 24 Hours. Yeah, that's right, John. You know, um, it's always sad. The, the, tra- the travel industry as a whole is, is quite a, a close-knit community. And then even closer are the, the operators that work at Le Mans. Um, so it's really sad um, news this week. Um, I know there's lots of customers and things around the world, but particularly from our point of view, we look at the employees um, who have been affected and are losing their jobs and things. Now, it's too early to say exactly what will happen um, as far as Thomas Cook Sports is concerned, but they all are under the Thomas Cook um, banner and are all going are all affected. Um, so we know that, obviously, mo- most of your um, listeners will know that Thomas Cook did run a um, campsite in the centre of the circuit, um, the Thomas Cook Sport Village, oddly enough, um, and lots of customers did um, use that site. Um, what we don't know is what will happen next. Um, it's very difficult to know what the, the situation is. It's really early days as far as the, the Thomas Cook situation is concerned. But it looks unlikely at this stage with contracts and um, being between Thomas Cook and the ACO um, that those will obviously be null and void, and um, it, we wait. We wait and see what happens. Really, it, but, it, it underlines, it Richard, what we talk about every year about how important it is to have travel insurance uh, for going abroad, even when it's not a quote-unquote holiday for a sporting event. And also, yeah. as everybody who's being brought back at the moment from the Thomas Cook failure um, by. Uh, the Civil Aviation Authority here in the UK under the Industry Insurance Programme underlines why uh, Atoll and ABTA bonded um, uh, tour That's operators right. like yourselves are so Im- yeah. it's so important to ask that question. Very, very much so. You know, your listeners will have heard me um, ramble on about that sort of thing over the years, and and this is exactly why. You know, so for example, if you had booked with Thomas Cook for Le Mans um, 2020 um, and you'd paid some money to Thomas Cook, um, then your money would, even though they'd gone bankrupt and, and or gone into administration, sorry, then they would, you would get your money back. You would be guaranteed your money back and you will get that, okay, within a, a matter of weeks, your money would be refunded to you. Does it have a knock-on effect in terms of what's happening at Le Mans, and for the other tour operators like yourselves, you're by far the biggest. We're, we're ABTA members, that's the Association of British Tra- Travel Agents, where we have um, an atoll licence, which is the government-backed scheme that you've just talked about, which is an, uh, an air tour operator's licence. We're also members of ATO, which is the Association of Independent Tour Operators. So there's all of these. We're the only one that is is members of all of those um, organisations right. and has been accepted by all of those organisations and fulfil all their pra- the, the needs, the practices, the due diligence, etc. that we have to do to become members of those organisations. Um, and that includes the bonding and everything else right. that we've already discussed. Let, let's have a bit better news, Richard, while I've got you on. How's things at travel destinations? What have you been doing? September, the the year has rattled by. We're nearly into October now. What's going on? It, 
it, it's been pretty pretty full on actually, John. To be honest, I think September, for example, how we've had customers at events around um, Europe every every weekend. There's been people traveling every week. Um, this weekend coming, we've got the spa six hours, not to be confused with the the Wex six hours of Spa Francorchamps, but the Spa six hours, which is more classic car racing. So it's it's been a full-on month of, of classic car racing here. And of course, we're now um, fully moving on. We're on sale for the Le Mans 24 hours. I was going to ask you that. 2020 brings us a Le Mans classic as well. Oh, yeah. So we will have thousands of customers at both events. They're just three weeks apart, which puts uh, puts the pressure on us. But it's uh, I'd rather be busy than um, sitting twiddling my thumbs. Let's let's talk about Le Mans. Though. Got anything special yeah. for uh, on you for Le Mans 2020 for the Le Mans 24 okay. hours? So yeah, um, obviously with the Le Mans 24 hours, customers know that we've got our private campsites, we've got the glamping, we've got the Flexitel village. Um, but customer, um, a, a news item, and this is an exclusive for uh, Midweek Motorsport. Um, people will be familiar with um, the the brand name of Speed Chills. Um, Speed Chills have been down at Le Mans. Um, for a good few years now, and a really, really nice um, company um, set up by a gentleman called Neil Matthews. I don't know. Um, and they have been looking after um, people down there for a number of years. Now, Neil's um, got fingers in many pies, I think I'm fair, it's fair to say, and he's um, being, his time is being taken up elsewhere, basically. Um, and he approached us um, very recently to say, would travel destinations be interested in bringing speed chills under the, the travel destinations family umbrella um, and looking after um, their customers? So that is what is happening right now. Um, it is being confirmed all this week with as far as the, the dotting of I's and crossing the T's. Right. Um, the speed, speed chills brand will continue. It will continue to be at Le Mans. We will um, we'll look after everybody. We will be um, moving forward with that. There'll be a new say. There'll be a new website um, look in the next um, uh, next few days. All existing um, Speed Chill subscribers will be emailed and um, informed and given news updates. So I'm really pleased that you know we're able to do that and and take that brand forward. So it's exciting times from that point of view. Really exciting. But at this stage, it's just important for them to know that you know Speed Chills isn't going anywhere. It's um, it's just changing home, if you like, um, and that they will be looked after and their requirements will be met. Excellent, Richard. Uh, best of luck with that, and thank you for thank you so much. giving us the news. Uh, and pass on all of our best to everyone. Thanks for thanks for calling in tonight. No problem, John. Nice to speak to you. Thank you. Richard Webb joining us on the telephone from Travel Destination. So an exclusive there, Speed Chills, uh, now part of the Travel Destinations family. Uh, and more details to come on that. Let's do a few tweets before we go to the phones again. Still to come, we've got Jeremy Shaw, we've got Scott Atherton, we've got Richard Creel, uh, and we've got a, a winner to unveil in a moment. Tweets first of all. Hello, says Victor Ellis from Atlanta, enjoying a long overdue chance to listen live, picking up the Ellis girls from school, getting them to the ballet studio. Jenna sends Nick greetings and is hoping from some Eurovision song contest references. Sorry about that. Not, not tonight. Uh, Danny, Danny says, uh, I'm listening late but will you please congratulate Mr Atherton on his retirement lots of respect for everything he's done for the sport Rob Jana is listening live 
whilst doing work for his new job in Mortis Sport. Oh, that sounds exciting. Racing bar steward, listening live with a, uh, a bad back, overdoing the job in the garden today. Oh, really? You need some liquid analgesic. Uh, Jack Gabriel's listening to the podcast after teaching his son Kit how to do donuts. <laughs> That's a great video. Uh, that's fantastic stuff. Jules is still at work listening, though, however. Uh, the llama's left the building. Shh, we'll keep it quiet so the boss doesn't hear. It's all right, Jules. Well done. Dave Alcock uh, listening in as well. Glenn Watts is in South Florida. Uh, uh, Tommy this and Tommy that says it is a big interview tonight, isn't it? Yes, it absolutely is. Sarah Rigby's listening tonight. Fantastic. Uh, Le Mans Cup. P2 podium for Ross Gunn at the weekend after starting at the back of the grid. You'll be talking about that uh, later on with Johnny, so long as we can find him uh, in the world. Uh, Keep those coming at Specutainment. Let's say good evening to another guest as we're working hard. Thanks to Curry down in London, who's doing all the, the hard work. But here on the phone is Sean Randall with a bit of luck. Sean, can you hear me? Yes, John. Good evening. Oh, it's like you're in the room with me. Sean is from sportscarworldwide.com and you've been doing a bit of fundraising for our friends over at Admission Motorsport recently. Yes, indeed we have. Um, we, we always wanted to try and give something back um, when we, we started our group and uh, Mission Motorsport with the Motorsport Link and we have some ex-service uh, people, members of our group and some people that do some other fundraising for Mission Motorsport, so it seemed to be uh, the logical thing to do. Tell me a little bit, of, uh, before we, we, we get to to making somebody a winner, tell me a little bit of, about sportscarworldwide.com. Um, when was it started? Why was it started? Um, and what's the thinking behind it? Well, we only started uh, a little less than a year ago as, as a Facebook group and uh, a new website, and we, we just wanted to be uh, a little bit different from some of the other groups and, and website pages and to, to try and give support and information to all branches of sports car racing. Uh, we, we try to provide support at racetracks, whether it be in person or via uh, social media and obviously the, the money raising, uh, the charity business and, and just be something different and a place to go to for all sports car fans. Well, and this is an enthusiast group rather than a business opportunity is what you're saying here. Most definitely. Yeah, OK, good for you. Tell me how you've been raising money for, for MM then and uh, and what we're going to do for you tonight. Well, we, we started off by running um, auctions on, on the, the Facebook group. Um, at this time, we've, uh, we've done it a little bit differently. We've, we've done it as a raffle. Uh, obviously, we, we've only been able to do this with the very kind donations of uh, pictures and clothing from yourselves obviously um and at the moment we've we've got to about 600 pounds we've got some really exciting things coming up uh, in the next few weeks to to hopefully boost that up uh, as much as possible that's mega well done and tonight we're going to make at least one we're going to make one person a winner and and that it's is this one of our jackets that you've got there Yes, this is this is the, the the rainproof jacket that was kindly donated by you uh, at Silverstone this year. The responsible adult must have sorted that out because I was away. Uh, I was I was in Barcelona where I didn't need a rainproof jacket. In fairness, um, in fact, does that mean when I look in the uh, in the wardrobe, but mine's already gone? Hmm, okay, <laughs> I see what's happening now. Let's make somebody a winner. I mean, is this proper old-fashioned raffley style thing? Which I mean, it's not going to work that well on radio. Tell me what it, you do. It is. I have a big bowl of, uh, of 
raffle tickets right by the side of me and a list of names linked to the numbers. Right. So sure. Give them a swirl. That's fantastic. You put the phone in there, didn't you? I did. That's brilliant, Sean. Make it work for you. Might have. You've, you've got a future. Let's have the <laughs> let's have the number and the name then, please. The number is number seventy. Seven zero. And who and does that correspond Mark to? Granger. Mark Granger was that. Mark Granger. Right, Mark. Uh, they'll be in touch with you. The guys from SportsCarWorldwide.com will be in touch. Uh, short and sweet tonight, Sean. But we really appreciate what you're doing for our friends over at, at Mission. And keep up the good work on the the website. And if anybody wants to 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 join in, Facebook or SportsCarWorldwide.com, eh? Yes, lovely. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us tonight. That's Mark. Uh, that's uh, Sean Randall, rather, making Mark Granger a winner live here on Midweek Motorsports. I had no clue whether that was going to work tonight with uh, just me and Kerry uh, working on. Everybody else's to the four wins. Uh, uh, Rennie De Boer uh, says, uh, good evening tonight. Jerry Sisk is live for the first time in ages. Thanks for the updates on the Thomas Cook Village. Good people. Hope they get it sorted out. Well, uh, that was, I have to say, Richard uh, was absolutely adamant that we should do something uh, with that. And I, I really uh, agree with him as well. Whilst we're talking about travelling, Johnny Palmer's been a bit of a traveller recently. Was at Spa at the weekend, our lead commentator on Le Mans Cup and ELMS. We'll get to Le Mans Cup in just a moment. Uh, and as we say, good evening to Johnny. And a, a, a Le Mans Cup race that uh, didn't quite go as far as the results were concerned, Johnny. As as we planned, uh, it, it, you better explain for the audience. Uh, yes, it, it's not that often when you leave the track uh, the night after a, a, or the night of a race with a top three and then you come back the following morning and nobody that finished on the podium retained that result because there are three names now at the bottom of the result sheet. I've got it in my hand actually saying that unfortunately uh, the, the the three winners uh, ended up getting disqualified. And this is all because of a, a fixation with crash boxes, shall we say, because the three teams in question, um, Graf, Nielsen Racing and DKR Engineering, there are some screws that go into the crash box and this is a homologated part on, on safety grounds. And the technical delegate uh, through a various bulletins announced that the, uh, the crash box mounting was checked and the fixations on these three cars had been adjusted by the teams. They should be 25 mil. Two of the teams to change them to 10 mil and another team, I think, to, to 20 mil. So they've maybe just skimmed the end off. But as a result of that, it doesn't affect performance in any way. But it does mean that the crash mounting is actually easier to take off for the teams and refit another one. But the, the ACO and the technical delegate said, well, that's not the bit we homologated to be safe. So therefore, your result is gone. What it did do is Lannan Racing, Mikey Benham and Duncan Tappy. Now, I don't think, I don't think Mikey would blame me for saying that actually he had a bit of a shocker on on Saturday because there were several mistakes from normally a very consistent bronze rated driver but they still came away with the win and actually the championship lead as well they finished fourth and they looked at the results the following day and it's a win for their Norma M30 and Landon Racing so well done to them four hours for the uh, for the main series the European Le Mans series, actually, pretty good race again. And these four-hour races just keep delivering. 
They do. I think uh, helped out by some glorious weather that we had, perhaps unusually for Spa in September, although I do realise that the Indian summers are becoming more frequent. Um, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a very interesting race because of actually some safety cars, some full course yellows, which threw the strategy out of the window fairly early on. It was clearly going to be a strong weekend for United Autosports because they've changed from the Ligier that they'd had all the way up to Barcelona, came out with one Orica to replace one of the Ligiers at Silverstone, and now it's both the 22 and the 23 cars are the 07s. And that's made the world of difference, it would seem. Um, Phil Hansen and Philippe Albuquerque had a race to forget at Silverstone with electrical problems, which led to power steering failure. And poor old Phil ended up in the Luffield gravel at Silverstone. And his WEC race the next weekend barely got started within the first three laps. I think the other Orica that they're using for the WEC conked out and they couldn't get it going again. Um, but yeah, night and day, because wasn't it great to see Phil Hansen and Philly Barbaker leaping around <laughs> in the pit lane at the end? They, they won it by 12 and a half seconds, but only because of a late drive-through penalty for Tristan Gomendy, who drives a Graf, along with Alexandre Cugnot and Jonathan Hershey. They were judged to have breached the 80 kilometre per hour oh. speed limit in one of the code, in one of the full-course yellows, the code 80s, as I sometimes call them. So had to come in for a drive-through, I think with 10, 15 minutes to spare. And that then gave Phil Hansen the lead. Uh, the Graf car squeezed into second place. But then a ding-dong fight into the final chicane, pretty much, on the last lap. Uh, with both cars, the Graf and the cool racing cars, going pretty much walking speed. And they were taking chunks out of each other. On the road, they finished 37 cool racing ahead of Graf. That was immediately corrected by Alcamel. Um, giving the cool racing car a 10-second penalty. And we reported that at the time, that actually the two places had been switched around before the podium. Well, after the podium, it was changed again. And cool racing do actually get second place with Graf in third. But, um, yeah, a, a lot of unsavoury behaviour on the podium, which included, I think, Nic Nicola Lapierre actually handing his third-place trophy to the, one of the Graf guys, um, so I think I'm sure discussions have been had since. And what was the uh, reason they were swapped over and then swapped back? Was that a timing well, issue or was that for contact? Or It was for contact. But I mean, I read that whole melee as each giving as much as they were receiving, to be honest. And yeah. they, I think they realised that Tristan Gomendy was also at fault because he was on the inside going into the bus stop chicane, the right left chicane. But he was never going to make the corner without a sideways glance on the cool racing car. And uh, it was Borger by the time, uh, the, the end of the race, Antonin Borger was at the wheel of the cool racing car. He went for an audacious move around on the outside. So pretty much both ended up off the track and then they were pushing and shoving. And, it, you know, it was a bit of six of one, half a dozen of the other. So they left it as actually they crossed the line. Right. OK. Uh, what about the other classes, GTs? Uh, GTs was a championship sealed up already with a round to spare for, for Lucic Racing. The Ferrari run by the, the Swiss squad, but with strong ties to the US. Alessandro Pierguidi, Nicholas Nielsen and Fabian Laverne. And that's actually back-to-back -back championships because they won the GT Open Championship in 2018. Despite carrying 30 kilos of ballast for all the qualifying and the four hours, didn't seem to matter. But there was a, a real fight on. I mean, 2.7 seconds was the winning victory in the end for Pierre Guidi over Ricardo Perra, who's the sneaky silver 
uh, Dempsey Proton Racing. So a good Ferrari versus Porsche battle. We were suffering a little bit with only six cars on the grid. We have had as many as nine in the past, but one or two have dropped away, sadly. And, and even the winners at Silverstone weren't able to secure funding for, for another race in the 88 Porsche. So five Ferraris, one Porsche. Hopefully that'll improve for, for the final race at Portimao. But, it, but a good race was served up, nevertheless, and, and very impressive for Lucy to, to seal the championship after only five races. Yeah, and uh, sorry, I missed out the other prototype category, of course, because we've got um, LMP3 as well, haven't we? Yeah, now that was bonkers yes. because <laughs> if you'd been reading, if you'd been writing down a lap chart, it would have been wrong, uh, uh, sort of more two times corners than it was from right. the end. Yes. Well, yeah, but also if you were scoring, if you were sitting at Blanchemont and you tracked the cars through on the final lap, it wouldn't have been the order that they finished because. Um, we were trying to piece it together even after we went off air. Basically, it was a fight between the number 11 car from Euro International, Mikkel Jensen and Jens Pettersson, Nielsen Racing, the uh, Tony Wells and Colin Noble combination, and the championship leaders at the time into Europol competition. Now, all three were tight. Well, we're, we're within sort of four or five seconds of each other starting this final lap. Now, uh, as far as we can gather, it was a, a 360 racing car trying to stay out of the way into La Fania, but actually... John Corbett sitting right in the middle of the road, which didn't really help anybody. And one of the cars got caught on the wrong side. That was uh, the Tony Wells car. So Mikkel Jensen, on an absolute tear, third as he started the final lap, was able to read the traffic better at Lafania and take second place. And then Nigel Moore, still to this day, I don't quite know why he was so slow into the chicane at, at the end, but Mikkel Jensen was able to reel him in and get past him on the run to the line. So that gave... By 0.3 of a second, mm-hmm. Euro International the win over the Polish squad into Europol competition with Nielsen in third. And actually, they're tantalisingly placed now in the championship, both on 94 points, Euro International mm-hmm. and into Europol competition. So it's going to be one race to win it. Oh, well, that's easy. Uh, that is the 27th <laughs> of October uh, at Portimao. That's one thing I can tick off from that. Uh, before I let you go, Johnny, the 24H series, Corentic calendar, the Hancock 24H series, just out today. Uh, and some surprises uh, in that, in, including a, uh, a new event, a new uh, track on me, the the 12 Hours of Alsace, uh, which is a, um, at the, I've never seen racing there before. I, I went and looked it up and found an onboard lap with uh, a GT, uh, a, a Porsche GT3 with Sebastian Loeb driving. My, it looks mm. very, very tight, uh, very narrow as well. It's four kilometres in its longest form. Um, however, it's the date of that event that gets me. We've got Monza 27th and 28th of March. Great. Uh, first and 2nd of May is the 12 hours of Spa. 12 hours of Monza, 12 hours of Spa. 12 hours of Alsace on this tiny little circuit. Go and look it up. Um, and that's on the 12th and 13th of June. I, I seem to think we might be somewhere else that weekend. It, it certainly rings a bell with me, yeah. Um, now, I've, I've already looked up how long it takes to drive from one to the other because we're not busy on Fridays of that week. It's about a seven-hour drive, Mike, yeah, yeah, yeah. to the German border because you're talking, if you know where the, nation, the French National Motor Museum is at Malus, yes, just north of there on the banks of the Rhine. So, you know, you go another sort of 20 kilometres and you're in Germany. Um, and, and you're right, even on a bike, it looks pretty tight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 I fully applaud... The fact that um, Creventic are finding new circuits because you went to Navarra, didn't you, a few yeah. years ago? But I mean, Monza's on the on the calendar, Nurburgring. These are all places that I don't think Creventic have, have visited. Certainly, recently. Well, the so. Nurburgring one's an interesting one. Twelve hours of Nurburgring, eleventh and twelfth of July. That is, as far as I'm aware, at least on a provisional calendar that's been pointed out to me uh, on 
uh, Twitter, and thanks to Casually Agent John for dropping that in at Speculatement. Um, that is VLN5 on the 11th. It depends how provisional that VLN calendar is, because you're right, the word that, the word beginning with P is still there, mm-hmm. so maybe there is some flexibility. It's the right weekend, mind. It is the right weekend, and there was an event on that weekend this year uh, for this VLN. Year, yeah. yeah, so... Yeah. So two dates there concern me, the one in June for obvious reasons and the one in July because that's a VLN uh, meeting. Um, September for Barcelona again. Now that, we also, by the way, at Spa for ELMS had a new calendar for European Le Mans Series 2020. Mm -hmm. And there is a race at Silverstone on the 5th of September on the Saturday. So although we haven't got a WEC calendar yet for 2020, 2021, which will be the hypercar regs, Mm -hmm. that assumes, because the ELMS race takes place on Saturday at Silverstone, that the WEC race will be on the Sunday. Which is the same Um, as this year as well. Which is exactly the same. Mm. Uh, The other interesting thing is that, of course, initially when the WEC calendar came out um, for for this new season, uh, 19 into 20, the, the, the first weekend of May was the Spa race, but because of right. a clash with Formula E, that was moved to the end of April. And that's created the vacancy for Creventic to now go to Spa for the Spa 500 and the 12 hours. So yeah. something happy's come out of there in the dates suddenly been revealed and Creventic is straight in. JP, thanks for joining us. Good to have your company uh, and enjoy VLN at the weekend. You've got uh, the, the Brundle family day out at the weekend, haven't you? That's right. Yeah, uh, much anticipated. This is—is uh, is this a birthday present from Alex to Martin? Well, say, yeah, I think it's around. Join VLN. Yeah, I think it's around a special birthday for Martin. I think he's twenty-one, in his head. Yeah, <laughs> good lad. Cheers, Johnny. Have a good weekend, you and Trusses. Thank you. Looking forward to Saturday. It was the IndyCar finale weekend, the championship weekend, as they were calling it, at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca over the weekend. Joining us now, Jeremy Shaw. Uh, who's back at home in California. Hello, Jeremy. Good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you happen to be. Well, that's a very good point, isn't it, nowadays, and and doing this the way uh, we do this. Um, Right, first of all, Joseph Newgarden, as we thought, uh, he he did it, he did enough, he he did exactly enough, gets his second championship. Well done to him uh, on what's been a pretty good season for him. Well, it really has, yeah. I mean, he's been consistently up towards the front. Uh, He made one... A horrible mistake at uh, Mid Ohio, where it, it, it should have been a lot easier for him in the last couple of races. But other than that, he had a really, really, really good season. So I think it was a well-deserved championship. Uh, Team Penske, you know, I mean, yeah, they're, they're always going to be up at the front. Uh, but Joseph has been really the standard bearer, and uh, he did a, just an excellent job all season long. Good to see. I mean, he was so excited after winning the championship, uh, and uh, that, that's always cool to see, isn't it? You know, the, the raw enthusiasm. I love emotion. Uh, live sport, sport, and particularly motorsport, I think has to be about emotion, should be about emotion. And when it really dawned on him that he'd won his second championship, they often say, don't they, the second championship is, is sometimes harder to get than the, the first. And quite often I've heard people say, I didn't really appreciate my first championship or my first Le Mans win. It was only when it happened the second time that I realised the enormity of it. And, and that he was overcome in the winner's circle about that. That was brilliant. Now, we should say, of course, Joseph was the... Uh, 2000, one of the 2008 Team USA alumni, the Team USA scholarship alumni. Uh, it was a great weekend for your Team USA boys. Let's go through the other championships uh, this year in the Indian Road to Indy ladder system. Uh, Indy Lights, presented by Cooper Tyres, 2016 uh, Team USA graduate Oliver Askew won. 
He did. Uh, very impressive again all season long. And just what's incredible about, about Oliver is this is just his third season of car racing. Um, before he came over to the festival and the Hayes in 2016, he'd done two uh, Formula Masters China events in in China a couple of years ago. Before that, I think in 2014, he did one Skip Barber weekend that year and that was it. Um, and and uh, and he, he came over to the to the festival and was running right at the front there until he was a bit unlucky and then finally picked up a puncture, which was uh, which was most unfortunate. But he was running really really well. And then at, at Walter Hayes Trophy at Silverstone, he finished second. And what was particularly interesting about that it was I mean he was contender all weekend long, uh, but it rained for the for the final. He hadn't driven the car around there in the rain before, <laughs> and he still blew off everybody except for Niall Murray. Uh, who'd been the dominant guy that year in Formula Ford. So it was an astonishing performance. It was it was apparent right away. First time I saw him drive, which was at our shootout, I thought, this boy's a bit special. And, and Gilles de Ferran was there with us for that uh, for that shootout that year. And uh, we were you know, comparing notes, obviously, as, as sort of fellow judges. And, you know, we could see that uh, this was a, a pretty extraordinary talent. Uh, his uh, fellow graduate that year was Kyle Kirkwood. I remember speaking to both of the guys, and he's just won a championship as well this past weekend. Uh, and again, he, he he backed that up because he, he won last year's USF 2000 championship, kind of following the, in the footsteps of Oliver, who'd won it the year before. Uh, he also won last year the the uh, SCCA uh, Formula 3 United States championship, uh, dominated that. Uh, he also, the year before that, dominated the USF4 as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he's just on a ridiculous win streak, is, uh, is Kirkwood. And the, the last, I think, 10 races of the season this year, he was only beaten twice. Uh, and, he, and he was only beaten because he was taken out by his teammate. <laughs> <laughs> Which was uh, a bit embarrassing for the team. But, yeah, they came away with it and they won the championship. So, all's well that ends well. So, so, another very special talent. So, so far, then, the NTT IndyCar Series champion, the Indy Light presented by Cooper Tire champion, the Indy Pro 2000 presented by T- Cooper Tires. And I'd, be happy, I'd, be, I'd be happy with that. You'd be happy with, you'd be happy with any one of those, wouldn't you? Let's, let, let's be honest. But let's add to that... Uh, 2018, one of your Team USA scholarship winners uh, in Braden Eaves, the USF 2000, the Cooper Ties USF 2000 championship, effectively that first rung on the ladder when the guys come back from, from the UK and Team USA, the tentacle into USF at 2000, and, and Braden's taken that this year. It's, been, it's a clean sweep for Team USA, Jeremy. N- not only that, that you know, all these drivers came out through the same sort of path, but... The last time American drivers won all all four of those championships was two, was 1992. Wow! So 27 years ago, that's the last time an American won all four championships. And even in 92, in actual fact, uh, USF 2000 that year, there was an East Coast series, which was actually won by Chris Simmons, who's uh, Scott Dixon's race engineer nowadays. Uh, but the West Coast series was won by Greg Moore, who of course is a Canadian. So uh, even that's a bit. Uh, a bit iffy in terms of claiming all American winners. So, yeah, it's it's been quite remarkable and great to say. I tell you what, Braden, he wasn't able to go to England last season because mm. he had a he had to have surgery, so he couldn't go to England. But I tell you what, he won that championship in style on Sunday. I felt so bad for Hunter McElroy, mm. who's just a great kid. Uh, he's he was born in California. Actually, he was a team who says scholarship candidate last year. In any case, but he come out, couldn't come to England because he was the, the final round of the Australian Formula Four Championship. That was his focus. That was his way into 
the road to Indy, uh, was the same weekend as the festival. So he had to cry off at that. But Hunter's been brilliant this season. He's been super consistent, been on the podium just about every race. And unfortunately, he had a mechanical problem in qualifying for the final round. So he had to start from the back and worked his way through. But, but Eves... He had a bit of a lull in, in the mid-season where he struggled, the team struggled, they just couldn't quite get together. But he really had to win that final race. Well, he only qualified third mm. uh, for that final race. And I was walking, I walked up and down the grid just before the start of the race, and all the guys around him were on new tyres, brand new Cooper tyres. And he wasn't because he'd used two sets of his three sets allocation for the weekend in the first qualifying to make sure he started on the pole position because it's, it's difficult to overtake around uh, WeatherTech Race for Laguna Seca, as we all know. And mm-hmm. uh, so he figured being out in front was worth using that extra set of tyres then. Well, that actually didn't work out because he then started the race on, on used tyres and, and uh, did well to hang on to fourth place in that race. But mm-hmm. in the final then, all the guys around him were on new tyres and he was on on uh, on used again and uh, i thought this is going to be interesting he's going to struggle here well he didn't he made a fantastic move at the first corner down the mario andretti hairpin took the lead uh, and held off all comers from there there were three guys who were who were all over him all the way through that race and he held on didn't make a mistake if that was how you win a championship it was really impressive jeremy we often would talk about a dearth of uh of American road racing talent. What has changed then in the last, what, decade? Less than that, six or seven years that have brought all of these quality young drivers in to road racing? The road to Indy. Mm. The road to Indy, no doubt about it. Dan Anderson, uh, Anderson Promotions, they put put on this program. It started off in 2010, initially with just USF 2000. Mm-hmm. And they built on it from there. Mazda uh, has been involved up until last season. And, and Cooper Tars has been involved all the way through as well. And they've really stepped up the place as well. So it's those sponsorships, those connections, those those, those entities that, that, have, that have made it possible for people like Oliver Asker in particular, who, who does not come from any money at all. I mean, he... he, he even his karting was primarily uh, paid for by the teams with which he was driving. He was a professional karter for the last several years, and he just couldn't find a way onto the ladder to move him, move himself up there. Well, yeah, he won the Team USA scholarship, which got him into the, the into the Mazda Road to Indy scholarship. Won that, got into USF 2000, won that championship, which gave him the money to move on to what is now Indy Pro 2000. Didn't win the championship that second that last year, but uh, he, the talent was apparent and. You know, there was enough belief in him that Andretti Autosport gave him the opportunity in Indy Lights. Then various people kind of came on board to make it, make it possible for him. Uh, and he's won that championship now, and he's going to be driving an IndyCar next season. So, you know, from karts to IndyCar in sort of three and a bit years, it's, 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 it would, no way would it be possible without a road to Indy. Yeah. Spencer Pickett, exactly the, the same, same thing. Mm. Uh, even, even, even Jack Harvey. Who obviously he was he was you know, the Racing Steps Foundation in the UK, uh, which gave him all sorts of opportunities, including to come over here. But then that sort of frittered away, and it was that, and, and he never won the championship here in Indy Lights quite. He lost it, you know, by agonisingly close. But the, the, there are opportunities over here, uh, and uh, you know, for the drivers that win these scholarships, you know, it's 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 you know just. That's the reason they are able to move on up the ladder for, for many of them. Uh, given that then, and given what we said about Team USA scholarships sweeping the four major open wheel categories, um, 2019, uh, the, I think 
have, you haven't made your decision yet, or have you? Or, or, you're just not telling us. I know we got down to a final six, didn't we, for, for Team USA? We, we did, that's right. And by the way, what we, we, okay, so we've, we've swept all the road to Indy and IndyCar Championships. Also this year, uh, Dakota Dickerson, mm-hmm. who was a Team USA scholarship winner, Fugit, he won the, the US F3 Championship. The opposition wasn't great, but nevertheless, he, he won that championship. Uh, and also, Jonathan Kotick, who was a Team USA guy a couple of years ago, he's been kind of struggling to get on the ladder, and he won this year's F1600 Championship over here as well. So it's been pretty amazing. But yes, no, I, I have made a decision. Uh, and I'm I'm trying to get around to to getting it all organised and, uh, and and make the make the announcement. It'll be hopefully in a couple of days. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm excited about that. It, it was a super shootout. It was it was six really strong candidates, and any of them, to be perfectly honest, would would be a, a good representative over there. But I think there's a couple of them where where the opportunity, you know, they're ready to take the advantage of the opportunity, and that's the key for me. They've got to be the two keys to being successful in this sport. Really, are finding the money by hook or crook, uh, and and being able to take advantage of opportunities that present themselves, mm-hmm. and that's that's a big thing for me. And you know, it's a, a couple of the uh, of the candidates are, are just better prepared to take advantage of going over to England to England and 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 all the other trappings that come with it. Uh, well, you started off with people like Jimmy Vassar and Brian Herter, um, Buddy Rice, and. You know, all of those kinds of people and finishing off with the quartet we've just mentioned and then we'll add two more to that this year. Uh, so it's going to be two of Prest, Prescott Campbell, Josh Green, Scott Huffaker, Spike Kolbecker, Michael Myers and Alex Scaler. Remember those names, Midweek Motorsport listeners, because a couple of those could well be in IndyCar in not that long a time. Jeremy, it sounds like you had a great weekend. Well done to you and the whole uh, team at Team USA. Well, that would be mainly you. Of course, I know you'll want to, to thank the people who support Team USA because without that, you couldn't, you simply couldn't do it. No, that's right. And there's a huge amount of people that, that are involved in this in this program. It's you know, it's that that's the thing. It's it's the whole American racing industry really getting behind these guys. So, uh, yeah, p- particularly though, uh, the Road Racing Drivers Club uh, and the Safest Fast program, safestfast.com that the RDC puts together. It's a brilliant resource for young drivers. So, uh, anybody who's listening in who's trying to make a career out of the sport, uh, check that out. Uh, Aero Sustainable Paint Technology, that's a new partner this season, actually, I'm super excited about. Uh, Doug Mockett, who's been with this company, with this program a long, long time. Uh, Cooper Tyre is another big supporter for, for many, many years now. And uh, Chip Ganassi, you know, Roger Penske chipped in from time to time. Mazda, you know, there's a lot of people that make this possible. And, uh, and it's great to see that there is the enthusiasm in the North American racing industry to make this sort of program possible and, and allow young, young talent to make their way up the ladder. Jeremy, well done, mate. You can certainly pick them. Uh, and I'll see you in a few weeks' time at Motul Patilamon. Can't wait. Thanks so much, John. Midweek Motorsport. Half time. And while we swap ends, here's what's coming up. Uh, just to prove we're live uh, in the third round of the EFL Cup. It's 0 2, 1 0, 4 1, 0 1, 1 0, 0 1. Get in. That's the Sheffield United Sunderland score. Uh, Wolves are up at Reading uh, by a goal, and it's uh, only half time in the Manu Rochdale. 0 0 uh, on that one. Uh, still to come in the second hour of tonight. The second half of the second hour tonight will be Richard Creel. We'll be waking him up in Australia for the latest Australian news with the super cheap autos Bathurst 1000 just around the corner, plus some more stories from there. But next, it's the big interview. And that starts right now here on Midweek Motorsports. Motorsports. 
Midweek Motorsport on RadioLeMond.com. Uh, Midweek Motorsport uh, Series 14, episode 36. John Hindoff, Kerry Cobb making things work down in London. There could only be one big interview uh, this week, one big story from last week. Uh, announced on Thursday, Scott Atherton stepping away from the top job at IMSA. Scott taking some time out to speak to us here on Midweek Motorsport exclusively here. Uh, Scott, first of all, the question is, I suppose, why now? Oh, and I should say, thank you very much for joining us here on Midweek Motorsport. Well, first of all, uh, thank you for the opportunity. And it's always a pleasure to be on with you and your listeners and uh this this will be uh, a difficult conversation to have in light of the uh, subject matter, but I'll, we'll get through it. Um, why now? It I know it comes as a surprise, and hopefully it was a surprise, because we wanted to get this information out the right way and for people to hear it from the source rather than from a rumor mill. Uh, it's actually a long time coming. I had originally approached Jim France and Ed Bennett over a year ago with the idea of a succession plan. Uh, Through the course of that conversation, we collectively decided that finishing up at the end of this year, the fact that it's our 50th anniversary season, we had several business initiatives that I was directly involved in that we wanted to bring to closure, and it just made sense. So for me, it's been coming a long time, and uh, it's just uh, – it's time for a break. It's time for me to embrace some – a long list of things that I've been putting off. I've actually been in this industry for 38 years. I've been had the honor of being president of IMSA for the past 20, and uh, it, it's time for something different. There's nothing. Uh, the other question is, of course, everybody will, or some people will say, oh, oh where's he going? What does this mean? Uh, is he heading off somewhere else? That, from, from what you've said there, then, Scott, that isn't the case. You, you're not going to be the next technical director of NASA, then. That's not what you've, you've given that up for. <laughs> no, no. That, uh, in, infinitely unqualified for that role. Um, but no, there, there has been a little bit of speculation. I, I have to say, I, and I expected it. Some people think I was pushed. Uh, I will say unequivocally that this was completely my choice. Uh, as I said, it's been a long time coming. Jim and Ed have been wonderful to work with me through this process. There is no next career move identified I've had several people already reach out with some very intriguing and interesting opportunities, but I think I would be um, locked out of my house if I was to pursue something like that uh, at this point in time. And that's a good point. You mentioned how long you've been in the business. You and your lovely wife, Nancy, have been married 32 years. You've been working in the in the business longer than you've, you've been married. And... Um, Whilst my schedule is nothing like yours, I know what kind of pressure that can that can put on family life and what sort of uh, what the sort of things that you have to give up and 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 forego. Um, is that part of the thinking, Scott? That it, that it's it's time to just take some you and Nancy and the and the kids' time as well. Yes, and I don't want this to sound like the uh, the typical president, CEO, stepping away to, quote-unquote, spend more time with my family. 
um, we, I've been blessed and so, so fortunate to have the support of my family every step of the way and could not have done any of this without that. Um, you've heard me say this before, but yeah, in these 32 years of marriage and raising three wonderful children, we've moved 14 times. And, and that doesn't count the, the little moves from the temporary apartment into the house. It's, it's been 14 solid relocations always for the right reason, always for opportunity, but it doesn't make it any easier. And Nancy's been incredible, uh, never once saying no to any of these crazy ideas of here's where we're going next. Um, Our three kids are grown adults and have been successfully launched on their own. Very much look forward to spending time with them, but in a completely different context. You know, it won't won't be playing catch in the backyard. It'll be... uh, uh, I guess more adult activities, but uh, you get the point. And yeah, so looking forward to spending time away from the racetrack. This industry is not a job, it's a lifestyle. It eats relationships. Um, don't want to let that happen to me. No, and I completely, completely understand that. Let, let's run through a couple of other things that then just to dispel any uh, misinformation, rumor, or misunderstanding that might be out there. You're stepping aside, I'll use those words advisedly, as Chief Operating Officer of IMSA, we are not losing you from the organisation as a whole, Scott. Let me answer that a couple of ways. One, um, for the past couple of years, my title has been simply President IMSA. Right. Okay. Um, we elected to drop the COO. It used to be President and, and COO, COO. And yeah. for me, that, that was awkward and too long. And really, what what is a COO? I don't know. Um, so, yes, I will be stepping away from the presidency of IMSA right. at the end of the year. That's the There's calendar year. That That's the calendar the year. Calendar the calendar year. year. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Some even very close to us in our industry have not reported that accurately, but I am status quo, full speed ahead, no lift between now and the end of the year. There will be a new president of IMSA announced, most likely in the days following the end of the season. So we'll get through Motul Petit Le Mans and then give a day or two, and that's when that news will break. To be candid with you that is in line with what was our original scheduled plan for making my news public in that it was to be the week of motul petit Le Mans, a couple of days gap and then announcement of my successor when we came away from the weekend at weathertech raceway laguna seca there was enough rumor enough people had approached me it was clear that somebody had talked out of out of school so to speak And rather than have this news dribble out inappropriately, we made the decision to accelerate the news last week. So I continue on, at least for the foreseeable future, on the board of directors. I will also be the primary contact for the relationship we have with the ACO and the World Endurance Championship. So the link to Le Mans, so to speak, that, that we've had for so many years. Which is entirely sensible, entirely sensible. A couple of questions that you're probably not going to be able to give me a a huge amount of detail on. Your successor, I'm led to believe, has already 
been chosen. Don't expect you to tell me who that is, but that was already part of the plan, it would seem, going forward whenever this was going to be announced to allow that person to to, to get some feel for the president's job at IMSA. Your speculation is spot on, as usual. Uh, that's one of the benefits of, of being able to work through a proper succession plan yeah. that in our example here is, as I said, ob- over a year. So there was an internal process. There was an external process. Um, there has been a candidate identified and confirmed, and that news will be, uh, will be out shortly after the end of the season, as I mentioned. And I think it will be universally embraced in right. a very positive way. And that's – don't ask me any more questions no. because uh, that, that's a tough one for us. We need to maintain confidentiality there. Absolutely understand that as well, Scott. And thank you for giving us what you, you have on that because that's a little more than we've heard from, from elsewhere. But that, I think that will um, assuage some of the, the worries about the succession because clearly the other part of that, Scott, is there is so much going on with IMSA at the moment. With DPI 2.0 not that far away, the groundwork for that has clearly already been done with the the Manufacturer Working Group, with IMSA's own technical group as well. But you've been intimately involved in that and and some people might sort of say, "Uh, again, you know, people like to think the worst sometimes, Scott. People ah, it's all gone horribly wrong. That's why he's stepping away. DPI 2.0 has gone wrong. Not the case at all. Not at all. In fact, it's the uh, the complete opposite of that. I, I'm of the opinion that Simon Hodgson, Matt Kurdock, who are the two gentlemen from our team that are leading that process, have developed and are executing the global benchmark example of how a sanctioning body goes about identifying and confirming next generation technical regulations. And it's not just my own opinion. I've heard it from many others that have experienced several examples that say this is the the gold standard of how to do it. And it is going very well. Um, you're right. There's a lot going on within the IMSA space right now, but I can't remember a time when that wasn't the case. So this one is uniquely focused on the next generation of our top category, our top prototype class. Um, but it's, uh, I think by the time that I really step away end of the year, Mm. uh, that in terms of the regulations will be locked and loaded. So, uh, we'll, we'll be wrapped up and it'll be execution at that point. You preempted my next question actually was, is that in a situation at the moment? A lot, I'm sure people would say, well, why hasn't Scott stayed on to see that new DPI 2.0 and those new cars rolled out? But effectively, the work from IMSA's side is done 90-ish percent, possibly even more than that, when the new regulations come out and when they get signed off by IMSA and and the manufacturers. And that's not that far away, Scott, because the, it's been in the planning for, for such a long time. All true. Uh, the regulations, the finalization and the, the delivery to the industry, both the constructors and the manufacturers involved, uh, is the heavy lifting. Uh, and that's the long lead time. And that's where you want to make sure you get it right the first time. From that moment, then, it's as I said, it's the execution and it's the embrace of those regulations by the manufacturers and the related constructors 
to physically build the cars. Now, once those cars have been built and IMSA monitors that development throughout the process, and then a next important phase is all the documentation of the performance, you know, yeah. the wind tunnel testing, the dyno testing, to make sure that everything is in compliance with the original vision. But um, as you pointed out, and very accurately so, when Simon and his team deliver the final version of the regs and they are published, you know, permanently, um, you can take a little bit of a breather and say, <laughs> okay, the rest is up to others. Yeah. I've got to say, though, surely there's got to be, um, there will be uh, a little uh, bit of you that has more than a little bit of pride when those cars finally hit the track, because that has been something that you have been so closely involved with on, not just I'm the president of IMSA, therefore I need to be across it. You've, you've been personally involved in that. It's been, it's been, it'll be one of your legacies, one of your many legacies, if I might say so. Well, I appreciate that observation, and I would agree with you. Um, I, I did I did many interviews last week on this subject, and I will say that I was asked, you know, what what advice would you give to your successor? And it's it's to stay close to the heart of of the sport, and it involves walking the paddock. It involves attending meetings in ad nauseum. You know, that just there's always some place to be. And you have to have a firsthand knowledge of every aspect of what's going on from a marketing perspective, operations, competition, administration. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not unlike any senior executive in any business. In this case, I think it's a little bit more demanding because uh, decisions that we make tend to get uh, covered quite broadly from the core media that oh, looks yeah. after what we do. So. You know, I'm envious of friends of mine that are outside of this industry that can make decisions and it all stays very tightly held. Mm. You know, we make a decision or make a statement and in some cases it's uh, very public. Well, I, I, I would say that that's a plus point, Scott. In our chats down through the years, I've had to ask you some awkward questions. You have always answered them with the considered and truthful in the considered and truthful way that you you're doing now and i've got to say on a personal level i'll i'll miss our chat and we're not retiring the hashtag ask atherton either that's we're we're gonna (laughs) we're gonna keep that one going Uh, before we look to the the future and in particular your uh, continued role as liaison between IMSA and the ACO and the WAC. Uh, let's look at some of the past. And uh, as ever, uh, our fans, uh, who are big fans of yours, Scott, uh, thanks to you making yourself available down through the LMS years and uh, through the new IMSA as well. The rain line says, and echoes a lot of people, thanks for making endurance racing in the USA just amazing. Do you have a favourite race or a favourite race finish and and I think when he says a favorite race I think he means an individual race rather than an event but you know I'll I'll take anything from that I mean there's so many for you to go it's not it's not been a bad two decades of competition Scott when you look back on it this is the hardest question for me to answer for two (laughs) reasons one when you've been you know in in this saddle for the past 20 years there are so many epic examples to choose one is almost impossible i do have one though that i keep going back to because i was it was such a remarkable result and i'm a terrible person when it comes to numbers you know that left brain right brain thing so 
you'll have to fact check me on the year. You may know it off the top of your head, but it's when Alan McNish put the Audi LMP1 into the wall on the outlap. Oh, when they go around Petit Le Mans, and he went into an unprotected wall hard. And it was, you know, that the Audi prototypes from the beginning were tanks. You know, they could take an enormous hit and you could get it back to the pits. So he does that on the outlap. He gets it back to the pits. He goes straight into the paddock, straight up onto the lift inside the team uh, transporter tent area. He never gets out of the car. The pre-race activities go forward. They're completely rebuilding the car that has been severely damaged. The fact that it got back to the paddock is remarkable. During that period of time, he keys the mic in the car. All the, the mechanics have headsets on, so they're all listening back and forth. You know, it's just total chaos. They're all focused on that matter at hand. He keys the mic and says, guys, I'm so, so sorry. But if you fix this car, I'll win this race. The race goes green. He's still in the paddock. He finally gets off the, the lift back on the ground. They fire it up. They race through the paddock with motor scooters ahead of him, waving people out of the way, onto the pit lane, out onto the racetrack. And for the next 10 hours, he masterfully, with the strategy behind him from the team, puts the pieces back together to get back on the lead lap and ultimately wins the race. It is a Hollywood script you can't make up. That one stands out. I've got a feeling they were back in the lead of the race by about six or seven hours, uh, maybe even before that. I, I know exactly when, you were, when you're talking about And I can't remember whether it was, oh, was it all seven or all six I was going to say 06, but I, as I said, we got to fact check each other on that. <laughs> the thing is, there's been too many good races, as you, as you rightly, rightly say. Um, and Audi was such an important part of, of, uh, of what was going on uh, in those days. Um, let's go to William Zadarnas, who's in Daytona uh, and a regular listener. He said, "Is there an OEM, a manufacturer in the paddock, not currently there, that you'd like to see?" There and he also said thanks for everything you've done to make the series what it is today. Um, so, uh, is there someone who you got close to uh, that it hasn't quite happened yet that that you say oh that was one that got away? Great question and a, a really slippery slope to answer <laughs> because so many of these conversations that we have are confidential until the manufacturer chooses to make it known. And I would say there there is an answer to that question. I'm very reluctant to to give the brand because I think it, it might jeopardize the future. Yes. Um, there's actually two examples. There there's a premium, luxury, high performance example that uh, that currently isn't actively involved. Right. That should be and is is actively under development. Right. And there's a mainstream brand that uh, fits the same profile. And with 19 manufacturers actively involved in IMSA, it's almost easier to come up with the the list of those who are not here. (laughs) But, um, yeah, there's two of them that fit that profile. And part of my charge here over the next 90 days is to see if we can't reel one or both of them in. 
and I know that work will continue. Uh, we'll have no talk of, of lame duck 90 days here. There's a lot you can get done in 90 days, Scott. I know you will be pushing very hard. Uh, Nick Holland says, is there a most memorable year in your career with IMSA in either of its iterations? And if so, what would it be? That's an easy one. Yes. Uh, and it's 2014. Right. Uh, that was the first year of the merged entity with all of the heavy lifting and all of the efforts put forth to deploy a best practices approach to everything we did. And I can assure you that it's much easier said than done. (laughs) And that was without question, the most difficult period of my professional life. And I think anybody who was directly involved with us at that time would readily agree. Uh, It was brutal. And, but it was also incredibly rewarding and satisfying to see all the work that had been done by so many people come to fruition and actually have a successful launch of the merged entity, the new IMSA at the time known as the Tudor United Sports Car Championship. Um, but yeah, hands down, no question, 2014. And on that then, that's perfectly, you've led into Kevin Payne's question here, which he submitted using hashtag Ask Atherton, and I promise you we are not definitely not retiring that it's going to keep going i've said it twice now so that makes it true uh, what was the biggest challenge then during uh, that lms grand dam merger what what could have gone wrong to stop it and, and, and what were you most pleased was there any one thing scott that you were most pre- pleased as a an, an issue to solve or a, a challenge to get around that's another easy one for me because without question it was making the adjustments to both the Grand Am Daytona prototype and the American Le Mans series LMP2 car to enable them to effectively compete with each other Mm. for the overall win in the top class. And credit where credit's due, that process was led by Scott Elkins, who uh, is no longer with the company, but now very highly placed within the FIA Mm. as a, uh, chief steward and uh, travels the world looking after those sorts of responsibilities. But he led the engineering process to, to do what was needed to the Daytona prototype and what was needed to the LMP2 car, not just to match up a lap time, because while that wouldn't have been easy, that also wouldn't have been fair. What was most difficult was to enable them to achieve that lap time in a similar way so that you could have good racing between the two platforms. And it was remarkably well done and very successful. And it enabled us to, to have that merged period where we, we made a commitment that your equipment will be viable. Yes. And there's nothing that's going to be made obsolete. And again, all these commitments were very easy to throw out there and, and make it, but it's very difficult to deliver and fulfill. And, and I think we got it right with that. Uh, and that, that takes us into looking at the future with this one uh, from Nick, who says, uh, and I, particularly this is aimed, I think, at your role um, with the liaison role between IMSA and the ACO-WAC um, alliance there. Regulatory convergence. We hear a lot about it. Um, is it possible? Is it an impossible nirvana? And... And, and this is the interesting part of Nick's question. As a series and a promoter, is it desirable to have regulatory convergence? 
Hands down, yes. Right. And especially as you look to the future. Uh, it, it, I believe it is an important priority as we speak right now, and it will become even more important as time passes. The reason being that the pressure on every manufacturer that's associated with automobile manufacturing or what they refer to now as simply mobility, <laughs> the pressure on their budgets and on their capital accumulation to fund the development of next generation technology, autonomous vehicles, uh, powertrains that are not associated with the internal combustion engine, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things are unprecedented, and the pace of evolution is also unprecedented. And for that reason, if you're an expensive elective, because it's, it's the rare exception for an automobile manufacturer that racing is an absolute must-have, there are those examples out there, but you don't want your platform to be limited to those few examples. You want it to be attractive to many others where it's not priority one. And for that reason, the, the convergence of regulations to make it possible for a manufacturer to develop a chassis, a car, a platform, as you will, in one example that then can be deployed globally is a must-have. And the sooner we achieve that, I believe the better off we will all be. From a global standpoint, not just from an IMSA standpoint. No question. Right. Yeah, I think I'm, we've got our global hat on when we make those comments. And as enthusiasts and fans of what we do, we've got to look to the bigger picture nowadays. As much as we love what's going on in, in IMSA, it can't operate in a vacuum. Nothing does uh, anymore. A couple of one-liners that are, are, are hot at the moment on the... Uh, Radio Show Limited Listeners Collective on Facebook. If you could have just one race car as your own, what would you have? You're a Porsche guy, aren't you? You are a Porsche guy. Well, I, I, I love many brands, but I will go back to my, you know, original early days as a pure fan, as a kid, you know, at 13 years old, watching Mark Donahue oh. race the 917. Oh. Yeah, that's it. So uh, if there was one and only one, that would be it. But I don't want to suggest that it rules out many, many others, but you only gave me the chance for one. Okay, no, that's very that's very fair. The other one that's going gangbusters at the moment on the Facebook Collective is, and this is brilliant, I've never heard this asked before, um, if you could build a house, and let's remind ourselves what you've said about how many times you've moved, and, and I've, I dare say that... Uh, Nancy might veto this, but if you could build a house on a corner at any racetrack in the world, let's let's forget for the moment safety implications and things like that. We've had people suggest the inside of Moss Corner at CTMP, which obviously you couldn't do if it was still going to be a racetrack. But let let we're suspending reality at this point. A house on a corner of any racetrack in the world. Well, I haven't given a lot of thought to this, but it's an easy answer again, and it would be uh, the driver's right at the top of the corkscrew at WeatherTech Laguna Seca. Um, And I would orient the house so that not only did you have the view of the cars coming up 
from six and seven to the top of the course crew, which is eight, and then tumbling down the corkscrew, eight, eight, nine, ten, et cetera. But on a clear day, you could also see the Pacific Ocean yes. and Monterey in the distance. So, yeah, having had the uh, honor and the pleasure of running that venue for five years, I feel like there's uh, there's part of me that's still there. And if you gave me one option, also because there will never be a house built anywhere near that, so it would be insanely uh, valuable if such a place was ever built. I love it. I love it. And I, 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 we will allow you to have a direct access on there so you could bring the Sonoco 917 out onto the track uh, with the Mark Donoghue helmet and take it for a few laps anytime you want as well. This is getting more like Desert Island Discs as we go on. Scott, it would be remiss of me not to say on behalf of the fans, so from the fans, not for the fans, but from the fans, thank you very much for what you've done. Uh, an organisation is, is led from the top. And between Dr. Don Pinos and you, you've affected so many people's lives in the last couple of decades that I've been involved in, in the IMSA project uh, and the IMSA experiment, which continues apace. Um, from all of the fans, thank you. From me personally, as someone who's worked for you, worked with you, and who now I consider you as a friend, uh, thank you very much for how you have dealt with us down through the years, how you've believed in what we've done, both uh, individually and as a company. And we wish you and Nancy and the children all the best in the future. But you don't get to walk away from hashtag Ask Atherton. We'll have you back, I promise. John, I, I hope I can take just a little bit of time here to to reciprocate because you and I go back to day one for me with Don. Uh, which I believe, if my memory is correct, is somewhere in the latter part of 1999 going into 2000. Mm -hmm. And it has been an absolute pleasure. You know, you you, uh, have the DNA of a core fan at the highest level. I consider myself to be on that same team with you. Uh, Collectively, with many, many others, we've been able to build something that I think is pretty special right now, and it's, it's in a great place. The feedback from the fans, the interest, the commitment, you know, the devotion that they've shown throughout this period has been second to none. It is Again, I don't want it to sound as cliche or, you know, like it's a prepared statement, but it has been a labor of love, mm-hmm. and uh, I will continue in that vein. I, I just transitioned from the role that I'm in to that of uh, one of the most ardent, dedicated fans. Thank you to you, to Eve, and everybody uh, that's part of what I consider the core DNA of this fan base. Thank you for all. No, it's, it's been our pleasure too, Scott. And I promise the fans, and you and I have already talked about this, that we will talk about you as a fan. And a, in one of our special long ones, which will get done before the end of the year, and we'll have that ready over... Uh, the end of the season, Christmas time, we will delve into Scott Atherton, the fan, which we haven't always been able to talk about. I'm really looking forward to sitting down face-to-face with you for that. For the moment, Scott, thank you very much for your time. Keep up the good work. 90 days and counting. Well, and uh, let's keep it in perspective. Next up, Motul Petit Le Mans, Michelin Raceway Road, Atlanta. That's where our focus is today. Thanks for everything, John. Goes without saying, of course, that we will be covering... Motul Petit extensively on RS2, which is the home of IMSA Radio, of course, including a special midweek motorsport on Wednesday, which will be from Atlanta. All of the WeatherTech Sports Car Championship 
sessions will be live. Uh, the other races as well, the uh, IMSA Challenge Series and the Single Manufacturer Series, uh, the races live in sound and vision as well, of course. So plenty for you to look forward to in that first week of October, second weekend, first full week, if you see what I mean on that it also goes without saying that you've been interacting on at speculatement on twitter tonight and uh, thank you for all of your kind words uh, to mr atherton i'll thank you on his behalf he will be seeing them i see that most of you have used at imza atherton Atherton, if you see what i mean uh, hashtag ask atherton we've said it we're not going to retire it that'll keep on going as well many of you talking about what he's done for the business of course uh, and rightly so but also a lot of personal memories coming in as well, which I know will make Scott very happy indeed. This about sums it up. Comes from Johnny Morlam. Hello, JMO. Thanks for firing this in. Um, he's he sent a note to Scott last week when this came out. And he said, "By all means, use this in the short tonight, hind off." Um, I I sent a note to Scott, which basically he was quoting Scott back to him when uh, Scott sent Johnny a note when Johnny stepped away from professional motor racing and Scott said to Johnny you've built a very successful career in one of the most difficult industries on the planet and you've done it with class and grace but thank you most of all for your friendship Johnny says I cherish that note to this day he says I quoted that back to Scott because I uh, couldn't think of any better words but I did say to him thank you for everything that you did for me and all of the fellow drivers for your humor for not judging when any of us got hot-headed about something and helping to keep our vision clear. Thank you for your clear moral compass and somehow always having the time for me, even among the storms that you have to navigate. And as you said to me when I retired, thanks very much, most of all, for your friendship. I hope that we can stay in touch and really hope to be able to see you occasionally. That was from Johnny Morlam and really, really summed up quite a lot of the personal remembrances that you've been sending in to Adspec your team and keep it coming um, I know Scott's been really uh, blown away by the response since that announcement uh, last Thursday and fabulous that he could spend some time with us uh, here on Midweek Motorsport rest assured we've got more with Scott as we said there with him with a long one coming up before the end of the year time now to take an update from Down Under can you do that an update from down under uh, i suppose you can let's say <laughs> let's just say hello to richard creel because i could never work out what time it is where you are uh, bright and early in my part of the world but very nice to be with you once again how are you uh, very well very well nice to see that uh, you won the ashes by drawing which seems to be a, a you know a, a thing this summer doesn't it <laughs> drawn cricket I'm, I'm glad you got to that nice and early uh it was on my list of things to I, I, discuss amongst all the motorsport news i knew i knew i knew if i didn't mention it you would uh, let let's let's get on to another great love of your life apart from australian cricket uh, i'm sure everybody puts you very much in the in the camp of gt racing and porsche racing uh and sports car racing but actually your first love and still your greatest love what plug pulls at your motorsport heartstrings is big single seaters and australia has now got a new big single seater category and you were at the first meeting and you were moved uh extensively moved both by the thunder and sound of these cars and just by the the broad concept and and the execution of it so yeah it's 
to, to get to your first point, uh, yep, love love GT cars. Obviously, endurance racing, all of that is, is magic. But as a kid, I grew up with the, the Australian Grand Prix being in my backyard on the, the famous Adelaide street circuit. And that was what drew me in. It was 90s era Formula One cars that were my sort of introduction to the sport, I suppose, as a, as a race fan, first and foremost. And, and the rest came later. So... Uh, Australians are noted for their, their touring car passion. I love that as well. But but for me, it's always been single-seaters and wings and slicks in particular. So Formula One racing, obviously, IndyCar, absolutely. And then Australia's domestic categories over the years, which have had a, a checkered history of being successful. But uh, in recent times, a, a brand-new class called S5000 has been announced, has been put together and launched. And... To, to give you the, the, the real cheap five-cent tour, uh, think Ligier Onroke Regional Formula 3 carbon fibre chassis, so all the current safety bits and pieces, which is nice, uh, mounted to a five-litre Ford Coyote aluminium V8 with 560 <laughs> brake horsepower. <laughs> Sorry, I can't, <laughs> you can't help but giggle at that point, no. can you? No, correct. Exactly right. That's the correct response, by the way. Um, so 560 horsepower, 8,000 RPM, uh, Hollinger six-speed paddle shift gearbox, uh, very, very limited aero, less aero than a Formula 3 car, um, really big, fat, wide tyres. And the whole idea is that this is a modern interpretation of old-school Formula 5000 that were huge here in the 60s and 70s, massive in New Zealand, and, of course, massive in the United States and, and a bit in Europe as well. So it, it's a modern interpretation of that. It launched at the weekend and it blew everyone's socks off. Um, terrific racing cars that can race close. Uh, they're going to set outright lap records everywhere they go in this part of the world. Um, but but the actual product, both from a, a visual sense, from the sound they make, the way they drive around, they oversteer everywhere. They've got no traction whatsoever, which is absolutely brilliant um and they can actually race they can run close they don't have a massive amount of aero so unlike a lot of modern formula they don't need gimmicks like a drs or push to pass or anything like that to overtake they can go wheel to wheel so very very cool weekend and the potential for this category is utterly boundless in my opinion Mm. The first event was up at Sandown. It, it wasn't a perfect weekend in terms of, of how it happened because there was a nasty crash for Alex Davison, although he walked away and apparently the car stood up pretty well. Um, yep. Speed, what, what's called a speedway-style qualifying. Whoever gets the best qualification gets your choice of starting position for the first heat and then you reverse the, the grid for heat two in this. Uh, and then mm. those r- results set the feature race race grid. How did that work? Yeah, look, I was as sceptical as everyone because I I love a good qualifying session and and I love that intensity of setting that that one perfect lap to go and and put it on pole. And and if you do that, I feel like you should earn the right to to be on pole position for the race. Having said that, there's got to be an entertainment factor into this as well, especially in a new category that no one really knows how it's all going to play out. No one knew how the cars would perform in racing situations. And the other thing to note is that this is one of two events this year. So it's not a championship. There's no points on the line yet. It's not a full national tour. Mm. So the stakes aren't enormously high in terms of someone losing a championship because they got relegated to 10th because of a reverse grid. Um, Do you know what? It worked really, really well. John Martin, who qualified on pole in qualifying, drew grid one for the first race. That meant he started 10th for race two. 
um, he ultimately started on the front row for the feature race. Right. So he was able to work his way forward. Tim Macro very much the same. He qualified second, won the first qualifier. Um, we had a very nice graphic for the, the TV presentation for the weekend that explained it all. And I think once people grasped that that where you started the first one, you flipped that for the, the second and then the points between the two, it sort of built over the weekend. So I, I liked that it gave it that flavour. The, the only tweak I, I think I would make, having lived through it now, rather than the top 10, I'd probably just limit it to the top six yeah. rather than 10 cars. Just invert the first three rows of the grid rather yeah. than the first five. But early days, they're, they're, they're using this opportunity of a brand new category and a couple of test rounds, I suppose, this year to practice, to a bit of trial and error, see what works. And then by the time they get to a, a full championship proper next year, they'll, they'll have a good understanding of what's going to work and what won't. Some decent names in there. Barrichello, of course, we'd reported that before. Uh, there was a Brabham in there, which obviously that, that yeah. I think, is written into the regulations uh, that there has to be a Brabham in there, isn't it? Yeah, in Australian, especially in open wheel racing, there must be a Davison and there must yes. be a Brabham. It's yes. just it's written yes. into the Constitution. Uh, <laughs> Matty, Matty Brabham, was, he was terrific. Unfortunately, he was... He was caught up with Alex in that crash on on Sunday in the feature race, and and apologised to him afterwards. It was just one of those things that happens. But um, he's a he's a star. I've got to tell you, John Rubens Barrichello um, was just the most outstanding addition that they could possibly have done, and and he was brought out for to bring international credibility and yeah. and for PR purposes. Let's let's be straight up and down. They needed a big name. They needed a name that would resonate with open wheel fans and one that would resonate in Melbourne too. Bear in mind that city's had the Australian Grand Prix for 20 years. So, but he was outstanding and he drew fans to that venue. People bought tickets because he was there. Mm -hmm. So massive tick. And he couldn't have been more giving with his time. He couldn't have been more friendly. I reckon he signed a thousand autographs and, and he couldn't have been a better ambassador for, for both his own career and personality and, and Brazil, but but for them to bring out for the category for the first time. So massive, massive tick. Uh, how many cars were out? Uh, 13 cars. So the, the 14 in existence. Uh, so the first order, they built a, a demo car, a, a, a testing car that, that was on the grid. Then they had a, an order of 13 cars from from Enric Ligier that were built and supplied, and they're all pieced together. And, and then if it builds and grows and there's enough interest, I, I'd say they'll commission at least another six or eight for 2020. A nice little link here, almost like we planned this. S5000 is going to be part of what everybody keeps calling, and and we do as well now, uh, the fifth Bathurst event. Because we've talked about this in the past and what it might be. Um, There's been a change of mayor at Bathurst, uh, so no longer is it uh, Graham Hanger. Bobby Bork is the new man that uh, we've got to be nice to. Yeah, look, this has been one of the biggest stories in the sport over here for this year was was the fact that the Bathurst Regional Council wanted a fifth event and they went out and got one and, and a significant number of people showed interest and went through the process. And ultimately, they've gone down the route of the Australian Racing Group, ARG, who are promoting S5000, TCR Australia and a host of other categories um, in association with CAMS, who are the, the ASN, the governing body over here. So... It's it's really interesting. It's going to be a fascinating, uh, fascinating weekend of motor racing. From from what we know right now, it'll be in early to mid December. 
at some point. So the plan is for it to be the conclusion to the Australian motor racing year, and, and it seems appropriate that it start and finish at Mount Panorama, given the 12-hour kicks yeah, everything good. off in, in mid-February, or early February. Um, TCR will be a focal point of it, and the plan at this point is a 500K at least international spec TCR race. Won't be part of the, the local championship. The plan would be to involve TCR New Zealand, TCR Asia. I would imagine China would be a shoe-in for that and, and cars from the region. And, and look, TCR cars that might be racing in other endurance events come to Australia and, and then ship onwards to wherever they need to go. So this is a one-off, that. one-off event. Yep. Uh, it's not at the moment part of a... A championship, and nope. that—that uh, I mean that—that that I think is the model for for Bathurst. Us going off on a tangent, what a shocker! But you know, <laughs> look what's happened to the twelve hours. You know, trying to bring the regulations into line with um, international GT, intercontinental GT uh, championship across the world, the SRO championship. The locals don't like it. Uh, the spectators don't like it. The teams don't like it. it, it there's something about Bathurst, and, and you and I have discussed this, and we discussed it at the time. Uh, there's something about Bathurst that is is Bathurst. It's unique. There's no, in some ways, there's no need to make it part of a championship. It's a bit like Le Mans, really. It, it is. In yeah. fact, it is. It's your Le Mans. It, it, that's how big it yeah. is. Even in supercars, and we'll talk about supercars in a moment. You, you talk about the championship season. And then you talk about mm. Bathurst almost as a as a separate entity. So people who go, oh, 500k TCR, but it's not in the championship. It might not work. It's Bathurst, isn't it? It will yeah, work. Correct. Yeah, it, it's a lure unto its own. And look, history is full of moments like that because in 1987, they tried to make Bathurst around of the World Touring Car Championship and no one cared. Um, it, it bought some cool cars out for a while and they won and then they got disqualified because they cheated uh, and Peter Brock won the race. So history just sort of naturally resolved itself there and, and it's a footnote in the history of that race. So, no, look, I, I agree with you in the same way that the Intercontinental GT Challenge is a good thing and, and it brings these extra manufacturers to the mountain that perhaps may not have been involved in the race had it not been part of Intercontinental GTC, but at the same time, the 12-hour really does stand on its own and it always has done and Absolutely. will continue to be its own thing into the future. So, so yeah, look, this this thing will be its own thing and, and I think TCR is strong enough globally now. There's enough cars running, 500 cars running around the world at the moment, plus that, that there will be plenty of interest for a two-driver Bathurst Enduro that will be a, a season-ending thing, especially in December which could be canny timing in Europe, especially when yeah. it's starting to get a bit dark and snowy to go motor racing that often. And quite potentially, people might be keen to, to come out to warmer climates, as they do for the, the Bathurst 12-hour in February. So that's a good thing. And, and S5000 there, that's going to be – that will be something else. That's going to be off the charts cool. It's no different to the TCR 500 that we're going to be shooting off to at Spa, mm. uh, which effectively becomes a 24-hour race. It's 500 laps. That's what the 500 is is for that. It is the pull of these iconic circuits that will bring the entries in and the opportunity to go and race there in a TCR car, I think, is a, is a great idea. There is one question in my mind. Isn't that the same sort of time? Isn't December the time that the, the, the challenge... Bathurst uh, sprint event runs as well, Krilzy. How does it how does it interact with that? 
Well, cha- challenge is generally early to mid-November. Right, okay. Uh, so I, I think there's enough buffer between it. But Bathurst is a bit of a challenge because uh, where the Bathurst 6 hour is that, that you and I have done for the last couple of years, um, is it getting to be about as late as you can run reliably there to be successful because the, the weather up there in winter is pretty dicey. Um, so you, you could run in June, July or August, but you run the risk of a torrential rain and flooding B snow. And, and they had snow in the New South Wales Highlands as, as, as close as two weeks ago. Oh, really? Um, and, and Bathurst received snow as well. So to, as a promoter who you want to sell tickets and you want to sell camping and you want media there and you want tourism, all the reasons the the regional council promotes that place, um, winter's not the time to do it. So that's why the events are sort of clustered to the start and finish of the year. You could almost think of the Bathurst calendar being a summer series in Australia, running from the Bathurst 1000 in October through to the the Bathurst six hour in April yeah. or late March, depending on where Easter falls. So um, that that's why it's scheduled like it is. But but again, I think working as that end of year finale. Uh, then I will have no problems whatsoever traipsing up there for a, a weekend in the sunshine in December for uh, for a bit of international spec motor racing. You and I are the type of people who like to read press releases and read all of them mm. and not just get excited about headlines. Unfortunately, headlines nowadays seldom tell the story. You noticed a little tasty morsel in there about this fifth event in December at Bathurst, which most people haven't picked up on, to be honest. Yeah, look, so the theme of, of what they've initially proposed for this fifth Bathurst event, and I hope it gets a better name than that at some <laughs> point soon, uh, I'm sure they'll come up with something genius. But um, Well, how, let's, so let's, let's, let's call it the December Bathurst event. December Bathurst, right, right. that works for me. Right. Um, I'll, I'll pass that on to the management and, and let them know that's the decision we've made. Um, so the theme is international. So international TCR race, uh, S5000, so big banger, open wheelers, and, and there'll no doubt be some international drivers in that. Um, Touring Car Masters will be there, and, oh. and ARG, Ronan owns that too. And they're at the Bathurst 1000 in a few weeks when, with an Australia versus New Zealand muscle car spectacular with 52 cars. So that will be part of that December event. Um, TA2, so American spec Trans Am cars are growing quite quickly over here as well, and I think there's plans to do a, an Australia v USA TA2 race, so that would be particularly good at that event. But the other one that was sort of dropped into the press release without any further detail was LMP3, mm-hmm. which which piqued my interest somewhat, given my bent towards sports car racing. And um, there, there are moves and, and a, a category management agreement in place to establish LMP3 in Australia, but uh, it was due to start this year. It was, it was postponed due to struggles to build a grid. Um, it's unknown at the moment as to where that's at, and certainly it's not looking that likely at the moment that we'll have LMP3 Australia next year. So that that indicates to me that there's a plan to bring some cars in from somewhere around the world. Now, yeah. Asian Le Mans looking pretty strong, and they've got a race here in, in January next year, and, and I'm assuming we'll have that again in 21, which would closely follow the, the Bathurst December Ooh, 2020 event. Said. Yeah, very good. So, so maybe LMP3 cars there. I, I don't know if you'd run LMP2 cars at Mount Panorama, but anyway, it, it, who knows? Could be a thing. Um, but LMP3 China, they've got a standalone series up there. 
So that that for me is the big question mark as to where that grid builds from. Um, but LMP3 cars at Mount Panorama would be a pretty tasty thing. And having heard them in the flesh, they, they tick all the right V8 sounding boxes yep. for Mount Panorama, don't they? Absolutely. So, yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. And that, that, that hasn't been covered out of this announcement because everyone's got the buzz on about TCR and, and 5,000, and quite rightfully so. You mentioned the super cheap Auto Bathurst 1000. We're two weeks away from that at Mount Panorama, 10th to the 13th of October. So a perfect opportunity, uh, with that being the next event of Virgin Australia Supercars, to uh, to take a look at the championship, which has been, uh, do we say, dominated by Scott McLaughlin? He's got 600 points. I know there's a bazillion points per round, but Scotty's done a pretty good job for Shell V-Power in the Ford Mustang ahead of perennial championship contender Shane Van Gisbergen for the best of the, the Holden Commodores, the new ZB cars. Scotty's done a good job this year, so has Shell V Power Racing Team, in amongst a bit yeah, of yeah. politics and a bit of finger-pointing and a, a, a bit of controversy, which we've come to expect in Virgin Australian Supercars. Yeah, well, this year it's been worthy of the best Formula One political seasons. It's been quite remarkable parity changes between the cars and uh, technical discussions back and forth about performance and there were there were rule changes to the dampers that the cars are allowed to use which hurt some teams as well and um, the Ford Mustang just moved the goalposts into a different ballpark so that was such a big thing but irrespective of that there are six Ford Mustangs in the supercars field and only one of them has has dominated and that's Scott McLaughlin and the com- um, the combination of Scotty, who who's the reigning champion, his engineer Ludo Lacroix, who's a, who's a genius on the microphone and comes up with these crazy strategies. And um, he's a Frenchman. He's been out here for some time, came out with Triple Eight, ironically, and was poached by um, Penske when Roger came into the championship. Um, he's completely and utterly indecipherable on the radio. I don't know how Scotty picks up what he's being told, but it, it's a combination that works brilliantly. Um, he's been in a class of one. His qualifying pace is amazing. His win at Pukekohe in New Zealand last time out broke the record for the most wins in a single season in the history of supercars racing, and that's including the Australian Touring Car Championship dating back to the 1950s. So this, this is history-making stuff. And while there are an enormous amount of points up for grabs, 300 across a weekend... So in a two-race weekend, it's 150 points for a win. Scott's 598 points up. So he can DNF at Bathurst. He can DNF both races in the Gold Coast. And assuming Shane Van Gisbergen wins them all, he'll trail the championship by two points. So that's that's how dominant he's been. But what it does do is it gives him a really big opportunity to shake it at the mountain yeah. with out worrying about a championship because even if he ends up in the wall or has a mechanical drama, the worst possible result is that he'll leave Bathurst still leading the championship by an entire round. So Bathurst is now on Penske's radar. It's the big one. They haven't won. They won everything else. Bathurst is huge for them now. And, And for Scotty as well, who's won every other major race, needs to needs to win a Bathurst to complete what's a remarkable CV for a, a bloke who's 25 years old. So, And who's he going to be paired um, up with at Bathurst then? Who's his co-driver for the, the group? Alex, Alex Premat so, uh, is back. So he's been driving with Scott since the, the Volvo days at yeah. Gary Rogers Motorsport. They're a good combo. 
but they're not the best combo in the race. Um, and and I my biggest concern for them is that Alex hasn't had any seat time in the cars this year. Whereas across the camp at the Red Bull Holden Racing Team, they've got the two strongest uh, Bathurst combinations I think ever assembled. Um, and and I'm not overstating that. And I'll tell you who they are. So Jamie Winkup. Um, he's just, got just uh, saw uh, this yesterday. Yeah, Craig Lowndes. I've been fortunate enough to speak to Lounsey, obviously with him coming to do the sports car racing as well. You, you can never underestimate Lounsey in the car, but actually his influence outside of the car, I mean, Jamie, as you would say, is a canny little steerer on his own, but Lounsey in that kind some ways, does that take a bit of pressure off Jamie Winkup? Yeah, 100%. Yep, 100% it does. So Jamie's the best touring car driver in the history of the sport in Australia. Um, and, and it's only when he retires that I think he'll get the proper adulation that he deserves. But but he's won seven championships. He's won 110, 112 races now. Um, he's won Bathurst four times. I mean, he's one of the absolute greatest. Um, but, but when it comes to Mount Panorama, only Peter Brock has been better than Craig Lowndes in terms of race wins. And then there's an argument to be made that Lowndes has done it in an era where the competition is three times as strong and, and the sport is so vastly different. So they're an unbelievable combination. That That is great. And and they've won the race together three times before. So in that, that peak era, you know, six, seven and eight for, for Triple Eight. So that it's reuniting a great combo. Craig's just confirmed that he's re-signed with Triple Eight for another three years mm. to be a co-driver for the Enduros into the future. So He's not going anywhere, um, and he's still the biggest name in the sport in Australia by a margin. The Lowndes, Weber, Ricardo are the three household names in Aussie motorsport right at the very top of everyone's tongue. So he, he moves the needle. He's vitally important for the sport. The other car there, by the way, Shane Van Gisbergen, arguably one of the fastest drivers in the yep. series, has got Garth Tander, oh. who's stepped out of a full-time seat, and Garth's a, a four-time winner on the mountain, He's one of the best the series has had for the last 20 years. Former champion, 50-odd race wins, former factory Holden driver. That That's an unbelievably strong combo. So if the Battle of Bathurst comes down to those two teams, it's advantage Red Bull in terms of driver strength. Um, I reckon the Mustangs are going to be faster over a lap. Um, how they play that out over a distance will be uh, very interesting. But as always, with Bathurst, as you know so well, my friend, it's never down to just one or two cars. There's no. a whole bunch of them that will be in. And when they get to lap 130 and everyone's made their final pit stop and there's an inevitable safety car with an hour to go, that's when the race starts. So put your fastest driver in and away you go. I'm delighted to say, say by the way, on a personal level, because as somebody that I've met and spoken to uh, quite a lot uh, with his sports car commitments and particularly his Mercedes-Benz commitment. Dean Canto, back at the great race. Uh, yes. I th- yep. think the fourth most experienced driver uh, in terms of uh, of Mount Panorama starts on the grid. It, teaming up with young Macaulay Jones, uh, which yeah. it, it, that's, a, that's an interesting... That's an interesting combo there because I reckon Dink would probably drive that with his eyes closed backwards, one hand behind his back, uh, to be honest. Uh, and 38-year-old now, Dean, but with with that experience comes a cool head, and, and that's exactly what young Macaulay Jones will need. Yeah, so Macaulay's a second, well, third-generation driver because the, the Jones family's got a long history in the sport. Brad finished on the podium a couple of times. He's He's up there with it's probably three or four drivers who are a bit of a Sterling Moss, who are like the best driver never to win the great race. 
Um, Neil Crompton's there. Glenn Seaton, another one. Brad came close a couple of times. He's, he's terrific. Mac is a really good young steerer. He's had a tough rookie initiation this year. And But but the one thing that Brad Jones Racing do, uh, they are the team that will have no problems about trying something different. So if there's a safety car on lap one, they're the team that will pit and go off sequence. Uh, if, if there's a safety car late or one at a bad time for everyone else, they're the ones that will roll the dice. And they're a very, very smart team that might not have the big budgets and the high-profile drivers, but they always pull something out, and their cars are always good at Bathurst. Nick Perkat, who's been leading that team this year, has had a really, really good season. Uh, more top 10 finishes than anyone outside the top six of the championship. Um, rattling off finishes. Almost got on the podium in New Zealand. They're, that, they're a strong combo. Very, very good team. The other one to watch, of course, is David Reynolds and Luke Yildon. Um they're uh, they're terrific. They they probably should have won it last year, but Dave had his his dramas at the end with cramp and had to pit and get out of the car, and it cost them the race. But they won it two years ago, and, and Erebus have been very very fast. Um, one of just a couple of teams who have won the the big two majors, the twelve hour and yeah. the one thousand. So it, it's such a cool race, John. And and as much as they all the other events at Bathurst are amazing, and we love the six hour for its its grassroots level yep. racing and the the production cars and. We love the 12 hour because it's the international stage and it's GT3 cars at their absolute best. Yeah. Um, but the 1000s, the granddaddy, oh, it's yeah. still the best, best motor race in this country, in my opinion. Well, let's be quite honest. Without supercars, V8s, whatever they've been called down through the years, internationally, we probably would never have found out about Mount Panorama and Bathurst. Yeah. Um, it is, yeah. it is the bedrock on which. Uh, that venue has built now five other events now that we've got the December uh, Bathurst uh, as well. Uh, Crazy, brilliant stuff. Thanks for getting up to talk to us. And a couple of weeks to Bathurst. I think we said it was 10th to the 13th. Did I get that, that right it earlier? Yep. Right, yep. 10th to the 13th of October. Yeah. So we'll be yep. out at and... Petit Le Mans for that, for that weekend. Yeah. It's a, it's a big weekend in motor racing, isn't it? We'll, we'll be following Petit Le Mans quite closely. There's a bit of Aussie influence over there. All right, Krelsey, see you soon, mate. Ta-da. Pleasure. See you after Bathurst. Thanks to Richard Creel, to all of our guests this evening, in fact, particularly Scott Atherton, to you for the excellent tweets at Specutainment, of course. Uh, we're on duty this weekend. Well, at least Paul Truswell and Johnny Palmer who will be leading our coverage of VLN7 from the Nürburgring and the Ultimate Dan and Lads weekend with Martin and Alex Brundle driving together. That's Saturday morning. Check www.radio-show.co.uk for the scheduled times. Live in sound and vision, uh, that as well, from the off. Uh, and that's it. Uh, there's no time to explain. The Llama isn't retiring. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at radiolamont.com.